Hello, welcome to another episode of the B-Side podcast for the Film Stage website. Today, we are parking our car in Harvard Yard to talk about one of Boston's first sons. And I feel like I say first sons all the time when I do this, but we're going to keep it going. One of Boston's, one of Beantown's first sons, Matt Damon. Today, it's me and Connor O'Donnell. Connor, what's up? Oh, not much, Daniel. I'm excited I was to wait- talk about some fucking Damon, dude. <laughs> I was waiting for it. I was hoping for it, and I got it, and I thank you for it. Uh, that was Connor doing a Boston accent in case you didn't get it. I'm about to get assassinated in three seconds. Um, so, Matt Damon, kind of a king of B-sides. Um, we were looking at his filmography because obviously Ford v. Ferrari is about to be out. Um, the re- the exact release date is November 15th, so it might be out if you're listening uh, or just about to come out. Um, and that is the story of um, obviously Ford versus Ferrari in the 60s and Matt Damon playing Carol Shelby, who ended up working for Ford and competed directly with Ferrari in terms of making uh, perfect race cars for the 24 Hours of Le Mans, which is a pretty famous 24-hour um, long race that takes place. Uh, it must be in France, right? Yeah. Do you um, ever see the Steve McQueen movie? No, Le it's Mans? funny. I I it's have not good. seen Le Mans, I, but I know – so I, I don't know if I've said this in the podcast before. There was a period of time, I think it was right after James Garner died, where I had always really liked the Rockford Files and – and this, I, I do this sometimes. It's obviously, this will not be surprising if you listen to this podcast, because obviously the reason basically this podcast exists is because of this thing I do, which is I just got obsessed with James Garner for like two months. Like I always liked him and he'd passed and I basically watched every movie he ever made. I read his autobiography. I watched every episode of Rockford Files or rewatched, I suppose. And what's interesting is he made Grand Prix which is the John Frankenheimer movie from the late 60s. And I think Le Mans, which became the Steve McQueen movie, came out in like 1970. When James Garner got the role of, um, you know, the lead in Grand Prix, Steve McQueen was up for it. And it was either like scheduling or something. There was some reason he ended up not being able to do it. And James Garner got offered the role and he took it. And it really put a strain on their friendship. Because Steve McQueen really wanted to make that movie. And I always in my head think that McQueen got Le Mans made because he wasn't in Grand Prix. You know, that's, enti- that's entirely possible. He some really the, wanted to make it. Yeah, some of the photography in that movie um, is amazing. It's like well, truly incredible. And I don't, Grand Prix is not a very good movie. You know, it's got the Frankenheimer stuff that you like, it's a good action picture. Um, but it's a bit turgid and a bit long and whatnot. Um, and I have not seen Le Mans, but I've always heard the racing photography in Le Mans is like enough of a reason to see it. Yeah, it's, it's um, really like – it's super impressive. Yeah. Now, I'll say this. I am excited for Ford v. Ferrari. As we're recording, uh, I don't think either of us, us have seen it because no. uh, we're recording it qu- quite a bit before the movie comes out. But I will say – um, I'm excited to see it. I'm hoping I will see a press uh, screening uh, soon. 
There is a book that I actually don't think Ford v. Ferrari is technically based on in terms of accreditation and whatnot. But there is a book that I have read called Go Like Hell, Ford, Ferrari, and Their Battle for Speed and Glory at Le Mans. Uh, by AJ uh, AJ Bain, I believe. I don't know if I'm saying his last name right. Anyway, it's a nonfiction book about basically this period of time about Ken Miles, who's a race car driver, who Christian Bale's playing, about Carol Shelby, obviously, who I said before, Texan uh, race designer, who Matt Damon's playing, and Ferrari, and about the whole rivalry and the race and everything. So. I highly recommend that book if you get around to reading it. Um, it's well worth uh, well worth the read uh, before or after you see the movie. Anyway, that movie is coming out. Good excuse to talk about Matt Damon. When we were looking at his filmography, we kind of came up, I think, with a pretty creative, I don't know, thinking about how we'll do his B-sides. And the idea was... The the move the B sides that he made after each Bourne movie. Yeah, and right? some of them are not really immediately after. Well, There's some stuff in between because, like you said, yeah. he made he made a lot of B sides, but we kind of well, this, this is what I'm our, saying. Our yeah, post. Well, that yeah, so that was like the inclination. We're like, oh, he made the four Bournes, and it always it feels like, in a lot of ways, every movie, you know, not unlike franchises for a lot of people. I mean, like one thing. Now I wish we had done when we did the Arnold Schwarzenegger B-sides is talked more about that with Arnold and the Terminator movies because now with Dark Fade out and, uh, you know, uh, underperforming a little bit, right? He Arnold's career in the context of the Terminator franchise is kind of similar, but obviously even way more expansive than, than Damon and Bourne. Anyway, because with... So with Damon and Bourne, right... Born Identity comes out in 2002, but they filmed it. They started filming it way before that because there was a lot of reshoots. Doug Liman almost got fired a bunch of times. Um, it was a very chaotic shoot. Nobody had any faith in the movie. Matt Damon, even way back then, was coming off a string of disappointments because he wins the Oscar and has the monster hit that is Goodwill Hunting with Matt Damon in 97 and then has talented Mr. Ripley which is a critical darling and gets a lot of notices and then it's like Legend of Bagger Vance and it's like um all the pretty horses right it, things just aren't hitting but it does feel like a string of movies that you make after you it was yet nominated for slash win an Oscar, right? Like it does, no. it does feel like moves that you just are right. like, let me try this out. Like, you know, well, no, but no, yeah. of course. And you know, he's a handsome young, handsome young white dude. So he's getting the shots. Right. And he's charming, you know, like, you know, lest we forget how much Ben Affleck and Matt Damon were loved, uh, you know, during that Oscar campaign, you know, Harvey Weinstein living monster that he is, his whole design in the Oscar campaign of these two young whippersnapper kids, you know, from the, you know, from the tough streets of Boston, taking Hollywood by storm, you know, these, they were working actors for the better part of the nineties, yeah. right? Each of them, but the cell was good. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and, and, and they did a good job themselves, obviously. And, you know, the fate, you know, they gave that great, exciting speech when they won, they're like shouting everybody and people are loving it. Like, you know, it was a it was a vibe. And, isn't you know, that what isn't that what uh, to to call out our our guy Eddie Burns here? Um, isn't that what he called like what he cites specifically as the example for like 
having a movie story. Um, Do you remember that? Uh, well, it, you mean in his book? Yeah, so he wrote this for those uh, who don't know. He wrote this book called Independent Ed. It's a really good book, actually. Connor, I, I really everybody it. knows Ed Burns hit book Independent Ed. Of course, Ed. obviously seminal classic. Um, <laughs> no, but just in it, he talks about uh, one of the things he realized when he was making indie movies uh, as Independent Ed, you know, uh, that, <laughs> um, that one of the things you really need, and I, I think it's it's still basically true, um, is is a movie story a as much as you yeah as as much as you need a movie well, right like you Ed, just need a Ed thing Burns. to drive the thing that's behind your your yeah. uh, your movie, and I Ed, Bur- I Ed Burns has one of the best movie st- like you know discovery stories. Yeah, I think he I think he calls out though. Um, I think he, I want to say he calls out specifically Goodwill Hunting as like an example. No, I'm of sure. That. Yeah, um, that sounds familiar. And it's, I mean, because you're right. Like it is, it is very much that whole just, you know, it's, it's along with the, uh, you know, the, it's with the Shakespeare in Love thing. It's like what, what, uh, you know, Monster Harvey was, was really good at at the time. Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, it's, it's uh, creating, creating a narrative to build, you know, to build pathos around underdog story around, you know, um, there was also something that happened. This is less well-remembered, but when, when all the goodwill pun intended was happening for Matt Damon and Ben Affleck on the awards trail, this story came out that basically suggested that William Goldman was the real secret person responsible for goodwill hunting being as good as it was like the like basically suggesting that um william goldman fixed this turd of a script that these two struggling actors wrote Hmm. and and like got paid to not take a credit that was like this like lingering story and and miramax took that and like used it to their advantage in basically, you know, making it a victimization thing. Like, how dare you know this story be going around that this happened? And by all accounts, it's not true. I mean, Kevin Smith, who has a producer credit on Google Hunting, and obviously was good friends with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon over the years. You know, he he came out and defended it and said this is bullshit. Like, you know, William, William Goldman helped them. And like definitely gave them advice under many different drafts, you know, which he was wont to do, you know, throughout his career. But it wasn't like William Goldman like took the thing and like you know, you know, made it good or some bullshit like that. Anyway, will goodwill, goodwill hunting. So it's funny because so they have this success, Ben and Matt, right? Um, They win the Oscar, and immediately Ben Affleck is like a movie star because it's Armageddon. And it's um, and it's a pretty fun little role in Shakespeare in Love the next year, so like you know he out of the gate I think was like in movie star, you know he was like in bigger and some you know I guess people would say dumber movies if you you know Pearl I think Harbor. that was kind of the narrative for for a long time was like so I yeah totally so I think when Matt Damon had Born Identity coming out, it was like. Eh, we don't know. Like he maybe this is just an art house guy. You know what I mean? Maybe he's just gonna, you know, we know he's good, we know he's got the chops, but maybe he just doesn't have the thing. And Born Identity came out and was surprisingly successful. It wasn't like the biggest hit in the world, but it made money, right? Which I think for all of the money they dumped 
into the reshoots and just trying to make it work, they were surprised. So that comes out. All of a sudden, maybe he's a movie star, right? He finally has a hit past Go Hunting. And so it's a good, you know, it's a good starting point for um, he makes Born. It finally gets done filming. He then goes to Vegas to film Ocean's Eleven. And while that's all happening, he's talking to Gus Van Zandt again. And they're talking about, and there's a good interview, uh, I think, for the New York Times that we'll link to in the article. Yeah, it's an old, it's like an old Times talk uh, from right around when they, uh, when they were promoting Promised, Promised Land. Land from 2012. But yeah, it's a right. good, it's got a bunch of good little nuggets in there. Yeah. So basically, him and Gus Van Zandt are talking about movies that have very long shots. He says this in in the interview. Movies that have these long, long, pensive shots, and how. It can become a. It, it can be incredibly boring, but there's this other. There's this extra element that can happen where it becomes so long, and so intricate, and so brutal that as a viewer you are watching it and you're repulsed by it, and then you're like re-fascinated by it. Um, yeah, no, J Jerry, Gus, and I were talking at at dinner one night about shots that last for a really long time, and there's. They, that can either be horrible and excruciatingly boring, or there are times when, and what we were talking about was that sometimes you see a shot that goes on and on, and you feel like you've gathered all the information that the shot has to give you. And so you, you go through this process of going like, okay, I get it, I get it, let's see something else, to kind of like getting angry at the filmmaker, going like, you know, enough, you're an, you're an asshole, stop this. <laughs> But sometimes you can break into this other place that kind of goes, once you go through that process, and it's actually a lot deeper and wonderful. And, and, and we had this whole conversation about that. And he was talking about the, the movies that Bellatar does that are, you know, some are seven and a half hours long. And, and uh, so it was this whole discussion about that. And Did that's you watch kind of, those seven and a half hour movies? No. <laughs> no. Off that concept of just though, that type of movie, and then this article that Matt Damon read about these two kids, young men who were driving across country and ended up getting lost in a New Mexico desert. Yeah, and, and this tragedy canyon, I believe. Yeah, yeah, and this tragedy happened. This is a couple years uh, before this. They developed this loose concept for this movie that would become Jerry, J E R R Y, in which two young men uh, essentially kind of allow themselves to get lost in Death Valley and then have to deal with it and struggle to survive and tragedy and da-da-da-da-da. And ultimately, those two young men were Matt Damon and Casey Affleck. And so on the set of Ocean's Eleven, Gus Van Zandt would meet up with Casey Affleck and Matt Damon, and they would come up with the concept for what is Jerry, which is our first B-side. And for those keeping score at home, our other three are... Well, so you have Jerry in 03, The Brothers Grimm in 05, Hereafter in 2010, and finally The Great Wall in 2017. Now, as we mentioned before, each one of these movies technically comes out after each, you know, each born uh, movie. Quick note, The Great Wall was actually filmed before Jason Bourne was filmed. Right. Um, but The Great Wall had... 
Um, you know, it took a long time for it to come out in the States. They filmed it in China in spring of 2015, and then they filmed Jason Bourne in the fall of 2015. So anyway, just a quick kind of clerical note there. That being said, there's plenty more B-sides we could have chosen from. This guy has a lot of B-sides. He's made a lot of cameos in movies. Yeah. You know, like like one B-side we could have talked about, but it was kind of at the beginning of him maybe being a movie star, is The Rainmaker. Yeah, which yeah. The, that was the well, Francis was Ford pre, Coppola movie. That was pre-Oscar because I, I, I would, I would argue that, I would argue that doesn't necessarily count. It could, I mean, it could be. I would argue it doesn't count because to me, Matt Damon doesn't arrive until, until Goodwill Hunting. I think. No, no, yeah, I think that's, I think that's a good point, right? I think it is a forgotten movie, so in that respect, it is a B-side. But you're right. He's, like, barely a movie star at that point. Yeah. He's, um, you know. And, uh, yeah, certainly one of the least successful John Grisham adaptations. But I think one of the best. I really like The Rainmaker. Um, all right. Jerry. I So I will say I've seen this movie a few times. I love this movie. Um, it's one of my more favorite movies. Uh, I saw it a long time ago. They screened it. They screened a print of Jerry. I think it was last year at the Metrograph in New York. I was in town for work. I was staying with you, Connor. Mm -hmm. And I saw that it was playing on like a Sunday. And I was like, I got to go. Like, when am I going to get a chance to see Jerry in a big screen again? That's a good point. And, and I went and I loved it. And I will say this. This will be my setup. When I was younger... And Jerry came out, and it must have been 2003 or 2004 when I saw it. So I wasn't that young, but I was a teenager. I was getting into film. I was thinking about maybe going to school for film, whatnot. I think on like the Sundance channel, it was gonna, it was screening, and I was excited about it because I like Matt Damon and I like Gus Van Zandt, and it seemed like a weird movie. And I went out of my way to like, you know, be ready for the 8 p.m. They were showing the movie, whatever, and I watched the movie, and I had. Kind of the experience Matt Damon talks about in that interview where there are these seven minute long shots where it's like the camera's on the dashboard of the car. They're driving into the desert and there's nothing. They're just driving. And it's just a little bit of score and the glare of the windshield and they're not talking. And I kind of fell in love with each shot that followed the next, right? More and more and more. Uh Amazingly well shot by Harry Savides, who who since it's, passed it's a on. Gorgeous, it's a gorgeous film. It's like Harry Savides is, I feel like, the star of the movie, basically. Yeah, and I think to hear them talk about it, they acknowledge that too. I mean, this is by all accounts, this was basically an experiment in the desert. I think in that same interview, Damon talks about how it was like uh, Gus Van Zandt mortgaged a house to make it type of thing, right? Yeah, I like mean, he, he had mentioned like having you know having a dolly was a big deal, you know, like right, yeah. In and, terms of and budget. yeah, I mean there wasn't a lot of lighting because they're filming in the desert; it's all natural light. But there are there is a there is a heavy amount of grip work because there are a lot of dolly shots and there are a decent amount of kind of tracking shots and it's not some sturgid like you know movie in terms of you know there are not flat shots right like no it's all it's all be yeah. beautiful to look at yeah aesthetically i mean f there aren't that many shots there aren't many lines i mean they don't actually say much to each other and um there wasn't really when they went into filming it there wasn't really a proper script i think they they mentioned they had had one but they like largely ignored it um, it was mostly an outline i think i mean they're all credited van zandt casey affleck and matt damon are all credited with uh screenplay 
and obviously Van Zandt's the director. But anyway, so my experience with this movie is when I watched it when I was a teenager, I, I remember watching it like it was a drama and a tragedy, which it is, and it affecting me on a deeper level. I'm 15, 16, whatever. And these are young men, and they make a stupid decision, but you you feel for them, and I'm watching it. When I saw this movie last year on screen as a 30-year-old, it felt more like a comedy to me because I was watching these two dumb kids make this impossibly dumb decision and then make a, an insane amount of dumber, increasingly yeah, it, dumber and dumber decisions. And it was I, – I, I did not like it less. I probably liked it more rewatching it. But it was that interesting moment that happens in your life. And I'm sure – I mean you, you can point to many different movies where – as you get older, as you have life experiences, as you, you know, you know, watch more movies, experience different things, your opinions, your ideas about movies, they change for better or worse. And in this case, no different. I mean, the difference did not I still love this movie, but I found myself in the theater laughing at moments, right? As opposed to thinking about it all these years as this like great tragedy I liked, you know what I mean? That was an interesting experience. Yeah. I like, it's funny you say that because I, that's the thing. So I had never seen this movie and the reason I, uh, I'd like caught pieces of it. Cause I, I think as you said, like, I feel like it was on the Sundance channel, like a lot. So I definitely like, I've definitely like swung by right. this movie a couple times, but, um, I had never, I had never watched it front to back, uh, or even lar- like largely any of it. I never watched it at any length of time. But, um, but I wound up, um, you know, going like kind of avoiding it over the years, largely not because of like, you know, it being sort of an esoteric movie or a patient movie, but more like the actual premise. It's like, oh, so these two dudes go into the desert without food or water. And they get lost and they're in trouble. And like, I kind of was just, I like avoided it. Cause I was just like, I don't know how I could ever care about two people like who do that. Like, do you know what I mean? You're kind of just like, no, well, right, right, you're right. like okay. So I kind of largely avoided it. Uh, but I'm glad we chose to do it. Um, cause yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of found myself reacting the same way. Like I, I don't, it, I mean the movie almost doesn't even want you to think, think about that necessarily like you kind of know it's going to happen to a certain degree um but it is i think it is meant to be sort of at least of a little bit of like an an absurdist comedy like there there's some really well rendered scenes of like equal parts tension and humor and just bizarre craziness like there's a a whole sequence where they split up at one point um to sort of like check out different different uh like parts of this valley i mean they're in death valley but you know they're they're essentially in this particular ravine and they split up to check out two different sides of it and then they decide to meet back in one spot but then like neither one of them does it you know what i mean which is like the whole thing like i can't i frankly dan i kept thinking about like if you and i got lost in the desert like i think we'd be better at it like yeah, I I, I just think, think we'd be smarter yeah. about like okay, we should really like think about and granted, look, no cell phones or anything like that, right? right. Like, so I understand that, 
that's I, I totally get it but like they make plans and then they don't stick to plans and whatever but it, there's this one particular scene that i did love where casey affleck comes circles back and gets on top of this giant boulder oh it's such and a good it, scene that scene is it's amazing it's amazing and um and it's a it's a one take scene and it basically he gets up on the boulder he sees Matt Damon down below him in a ravine and he's like, Hey, like, why didn't you go back to the spot where I, where I called you? And he was like, Oh, well I, I did. And then you weren't there and whatever. But basically there's a misunderstanding and halfway through them arguing, Matt Damon goes, well, how'd you get up there? And then it cuts for the first time in the scene. And you realize that Casey Affleck is just standing. He's not standing at like the top of a slope. He's like standing on this like lone boulder and he and he's just kind of like, oh, I guess I scrambled up. And then so there's just a minutes long scene where they just Damon comes up and he's looking up the boulder at Casey Affleck. And they're just talking about like how Casey Affleck's going to get down. And it's I it kind of illustrates to me what I think is fascinating about the movie and why it's so really like sneaky, entertaining is it takes I guess like any good survival movie, like Castaway or something like that, but like it takes the simplest problems and you're just suddenly like, oh yeah, wow, okay. Like, how are they going to get out of this, right? And there's no like immediate danger necessarily or anything like that other than like the large jump. And But they mention like, oh, if you jump and you twist your ankle, like we're screwed. Like you're probably going to die because we're, you're not going to be able to walk out of here or whatever. And yeah. so they just start going through like all of, all of these plans and I won't, I won't spoil it, but it, it just, it's such a hilarious scene to just like watch these two completely inept buffoons, like go through it. And I feel kind of bad saying it. Cause you know, again, it's, it is based on a true story to some degree. Right. Um, uh, right. about, uh, David Coughlin and, uh, Rafi. Do I have that right? Rafi Kodikian, I think is his name. I'm probably butchering that pronunciation. But um, yeah, it's like the late nineties, right? That, that was yeah, the, two, like, the two young it's men. It's like basically right before they made the movie. I feel like it like happened, was on the news and Damon was probably like telling Gus Van Zandt about it. Um, but, um, I mean, do we want to go into what happens or is it worth it? Yeah, I think we can. I mean, if you want, I mean, we can talk about it for another, you know, five minutes. Um, um, yeah, and so if you want to jump, skip, jump skip ahead, ahead. Yeah, jump ahead five, five six minutes. minutes if you don't want so, to know what happens in the movie. But it is also a real thing that happened, so you can look it up. But uh, well, so basically, they they they're on a they're on a trail at the beginning of the movie in Death Valley, and they decide that. There's like other tourists on the trail and fuck the tourists. Like, let's just like go this way. This way looks fun. And they like run off the trail into the desert for like a minute. You know what I mean? Is the thought to just go a different way to just do it. And they get lost. And it's it's a really it's a good setup because it's the impending doom of oh this is a problem all right where did we go okay let's go this way and then it's like okay oh all right and they're like they walk around in a circle and they think they're going one way and they realize their sense of direction is all messed up and they go back to where they started okay 
and then they get it gets more and more oh this might actually be bad da 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 and ultimately how the movie ends is um Casey Affleck is essentially giving up um he's kind of mentally broken and he submits essentially he's kind of on the ground not willing to go any further and Matt Damon kills him like as a mercy killer right, he, he, stra- he, he strangles him he strangles him and then in an ultimate twist of kind of dark humor dark tragedy within the next in you know 15 movie minutes Matt Damon comes upon the road and is saved by a car right yeah. now if you look at the story that Connor referenced only a couple of minutes ago, some version of that happened with these two young men, right? Um, one of them killed the other in a mercy type of a killing. This is obviously the surviving guy's account, right? There's no other account of this, but that's what he said happened. And so that's what the movie basically reflects on. Now, I will say this. I do not have a lot of experience with this in my life, but. I killing your friends ba- in the desert or I, I have killed one friend um, and it was not in the desert. No, um, <laughs> I, uh, I was in Venice with a buddy of mine, a buddy of ours, uh, my buddy, Jeff, and we were backpacking, but we didn't have a lot of money at, it was like deeper in the trip and we didn't have cell phones cause we didn't want to pay for the, you know, like the, Back then, it was you get like the orange phone or whatever, you know, for international mm-hmm. calling. Yeah. So we didn't, we neither of us had phones. We were in Venice, we were in St. Mark's Square, uh, uh, and we went to some museum. And we like, I like, we like lost each other, you know what I mean? It was just like, whatever. I went to another room, blah, 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 whatever. We got lost. So I, in, I, I thought he was ahead of me the whole time. So in my head, I was just kind of like, oh, he's up ahead. I'm just going to keep going through these rooms. I get to the end of the museum. I come out to San Marco Square. He, Jeff's not there. And I was like, oh, hmm, okay. And I will say this. It was it was hostile. It was, you know, we were young. We were 21. We were staying at hostels. We didn't have a reservation that night. Um, I think Jeff was like paying. For, I, th- I think like... I didn't have euros. You know what I mean? I think it was like one of these things where like we were more than we even realized relying on each other in that circumstance or like I was relying on him maybe in that moment. So I'm waiting for him. He never comes out. 20 minutes go by and I'm like, fuck, like, like you're talking about what do I do if I don't find him? You know, right? Like, like a seemingly very mundane problem. Yeah, like for for fifteen minutes, I don't give a shit. I get gelato at the whatever with like the five euro. I ha- you know what I mean? It's like I'm just kind of biding time. I go up on top of a tower for a minute because it's free, whatever it is. And then all of a sudden, it's like the sun's starting to set, and I'm like, you know, I don't have a place to go to right now. Like, if I, if I don't find Jeff, I don't actually know what I'm gonna do. Like, I can't call anyone you know you all of a sudden you start going like huh this could actually be really bad like you like go a to b to c and you start to actually get pretty scared right you go like huh you know and i'm you know i'm also you know i'm also the age of you know the characters in this movie you know not that old you know like 20s yeah and jeff ultimately came out of the museum he had gone back to look for me because he actually was behind me whatever and he was like we both were like legitimately like so relieved you know just like hugged we were just like dude that was so bad let's not ever do that again (laughs) and so my my point of that totally like 
you know, generic, you know, like, you know, normal, pretty boring story is simply that this movie is a great rendering of, of that, of, of, uh, if it was that times 10, if it was like, you made a stupid decision, like you're talking about Connor, if we're that age and we get lost, I think what the movie does well, what, what Van Zandt and Savides and, and, and Affleck and, and Damon do well is like, I don't know that we would be much smarter, actually. Maybe right? not. Like, I, I mean, I am saying that now. I think they make some dumb decisions. Obviously, in the movie, I think I want you to acknowledge that. Like, they don't like they don't have water. They go off the trail, right? All yeah. this dumb stuff. But they're not meant to be, like, idiots, right? Like, they definitely think – they, like, think through the problems and they still fuck it up. And I do like – that about the movie you know and and just rewatching it it's like it's certainly an interesting not... little fable like a like a, a yeah a, just a metaphor yeah. for like man's struggle in life or something you know what i mean like you can yeah, think, I think the problem any, any which way you want it's just like we're all just lost it, in the desert you know and it yeah and it does do it does do that thing of even though it's long and the shots are long and it's not actually a long movie it's basically 90 minutes but no but it because of the way long. it's structured it does feel long. of course yeah. of course i mean on purpose, right? But so it's not a movie for everybody. But I do think, to your point, Connor, there is a sneaky entertainment value because even even the ultimate tragedy of that final act sneaks up on you because basically till like minute seventy, it's it's pretty well constructed tonally. Where I think as a viewer, you're still kind of going like, well, they gotta be okay, right? You know, because yeah. it is that thing like. Once panic sets in, um, it does weird shit to your brain, right? Like, obviously. And I think one of the things about being human is having that you know, is having that switch of, like, you are aware of your mortality. And so a scary thing about being human is in the moments where there's a chance of dying, your brain's going to do some crazy stuff. And I think in those moments, like, Matt Damon survives because he doesn't necessarily you know he keeps going right like casey affleck breaks down and matt damon in that moment feels he has to do what he does right doesn't make a right i'm not saying that but it's an interesting distillation of like you're talking about the human condition right and it's these two you know dopes or whatever but it sneaks up on you is my point yeah right by the, I, I think it's a by the end of it it's it's affecting. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think it's also just a matter of like, I, I can totally, you know, I think I think there's a certain subset of people who could watch this movie and just be like, oh, it's super pretentious. And they might, I don't know, like, you know, depending on how you look at it, especially when it was made and with what intention it was made, that might even be true. But like, I, I do think it kind of does, ma- you know, it does matter what you bring to the movie. Um, I would just say generally, um, I, I think it's pretty much worth it. You know, like even if, even if you're like not down for a slog, I think, uh, I think if you can be patient with the movie, uh, particularly as the beautiful photography carries you through, there is one, one more thing I'll mention about it. There is one shot, uh, in particular near the end of the film that I'd sent to you, Dan, cause it just, it blew me away while watching, um, they're walking on sort of a long flat part of the desert. And, um, and when the shot starts, uh, it's, you know, 
it, the sun is just rising, like it's just creeping up. Uh, and I'm sure it's probably that with a combination of like low exposure and stuff to, to get the right effect. But basically, it's a very dim, dark shot, right? And you're the camera's, you know, a, f- a couple yards behind Casey Affleck. Matt Damon is 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 a, is a few more yards in front of him, and it's just behind them as they're walking. And this shot goes on for uh, the better part of like six to seven minutes, basically, and is adjusted as as it goes along, both with the rising sun and the exposure over this six to seven minute long take. That, and the dolly. That, it's yeah, like it, it's it's traveling on a dolly that track. You just don't um you don't notice it. And so Well, you know, it's it's you don't it's 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 the way they construct the shot, you sense the movement of the frame, but the principles in the frame don't move. Right. Right. And, so and it's not just so, that though, it's the light too. Like by the right. end of the shot, before it cuts, you're like, "Oh wait, it's daylight now! Like it's full yeah. daylight." And it's, yeah, it's a, a brilliant, it's a brilliant we'll, shot. We'll 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 post. I mean, I don't know if we'll put it in the post. But there's actually, I was going to say, there is a making of video of them filming that. There's like a behind the scenes filming of them filming that shot. And oh, if I yeah. can find it, I'll link to it because it's very cool. Because I mean, look. We both work a little bit in the, you know, like like we mentioned before, we work on sets and stuff like that. And not to get too deep in the weeds with the technical stuff and whatnot, but I will say sometimes it's, it is, uh, I think, just interesting to know how this stuff is achieved. So if I can find that link for anybody who's, yeah, I'm yeah, just interested least, in what we're saying. A, there's a, a GIF, GIF, GIF that I actually sent you, Dan, that was, it's, yeah. It's that shot sped up by 3,000, so it happens over the course of like 13 seconds or whatever. But it really does hammer home like the constant framing and the yeah. the, the gradual nature of the exposure, uh, of the change in exposure. And it's just a really – I mean, Harry Svides was was a master, you know, so. His last – his last his, – I believe I'm right on this. His last movie he lensed before he passed was The Bling Ring. Wow. Oh. Which is an underrated, yeah, uh, underrated uh, movie by Sofia Coppola that has a great shot in that. Um, with the house, that I always remember the wide with the, shot house. Of the house. Yeah, that's an amazing shot. It's a slow. I don't know if it's a zoom lens. I think it's a. It must be a. It must be a zoom lens. A slow push in, basically like up on a hill, essentially looking down at this beautiful like glass house, and you watch all the kids rob you know in the house and then leave, and it's all one take, one shot. Yeah, it's, it's so amazing. beautiful. That guy. Man, he was a master. Yeah, what a what a treasure. Um, but uh, but yeah, anything else to say on Jerry before we? Uh... No, no. I mean, seek it out. Um, it is a curio at worst, and you know, a sneaky gem at best. I obviously think it's a kind of a sneaky gem. I think it's, you know, I would love to see. I mean, we'll get back to this at the end of the episode, I suppose. I would love to see Matt Damon do another. You know, do do something else like this. Um, sure. He obviously re he obviously reunites with uh, Gus Van Zant when they make Promised Land, what which you, was a what movie. What do you think of that movie? I like Promised Land a lot. I don't um, like it a lot, but I I watched. I mean, granted, I also watched it on a plane, but like I watched it on a plane, and I was like, yeah, this is agreeable. Yeah, like, I mean, that's look, that's my type of movie. Okay, um, uh, I was just, I was just fra- with our good. Movies. I was, I was, <laughs> I was just with our good friend uh, and creator of Cinephile, uh, the card game, 
um, Corey Everett. I was in Los Angeles for a for a film shoot, and um, what are you Corey, so cool, Dan? Whatever. Corey, Corey, <laughs> Corey has a phrase for a movie like Promised Land, and he calls it Dan Mechacore. <laughs> Which is, a, I think, a veiled insult oh, I think at my we could taste. Make, I think we could make hashtag MechaCore a thing. But um, it reminds me of the story I've told a couple of people. When when me and David Ehrlich, we uh, once upon a time were roommates uh, in Williamsburg. And um, uh, I was I was home one night watching Seven Psychopaths. And David Ehrlich came home and, and I really like, you know, I was enjoying it. And Ehrlich came home and he saw me watching it. And he said to me, he's like, Dan... Don't take offense to this, but this is exactly the type of movie you would love. <laughs> and I, uh, That's the most and, Dave Ehrlich thing to say. <laughs> and I did take offense. To, no, I'm kidding. That's fine. But, uh, but so anyway, I, what I mean by that is it's, it's politically minded promised land. It's politically minded. It's a bit on the nose, right? It's a bit kind of hard on its sleeve. There's an old Hollywood thing happening with it, right? All that stuff. I... I tend to really like movies like that, right? So, yeah, that's kind of I I think what I mean. Obviously, the Seven Psychopaths thing I think is a, is a different thing, but but in terms of Promised Land, when Corey says Dan McAcord, that's kind of what he's talking about. So I really like that movie. Now, that movie, which is not one of our B sides, but quickly, that movie Matt Damon was supposed to direct. Yes, that was going to yeah. be his directorial he debut. He co-wrote it with John Krasinski. Co-wrote with John yeah. Krasinski. John Krasinski is also in the movie. And basically, given Matt Damon's schedule, um, he realized he wasn't going to have enough prep time time to feel good about directing it. So he essentially called Gus Van Zandt and asked Gus Van Zandt to do him a favor and and direct it. So kind of a, a workman job by Van Zandt in terms of, you know, just help, you know, taking the job and doing it. But I think it's an underrated movie. I mean, it was a you know came and went. Nobody nobody really cared about it. I think it was on, a, you know. on the set of that movie, I picture Gus Van Sant like he is in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Yeah, like where busy, he's, he's just counting busy. his money. Um, but so Axon so, Gus. Uh, <laughs> Gus or, um, all right. So now we're gonna go from a movie that was meticulously planned and experimented on, <laughs> and a vision that was kind of agreed upon and communicated on set and ultimately I think well delivered to a movie that was the exact opposite of that. Certainly was. Uh, and that, that movie is called the brothers Grimm. Yep. Uh, 2005, a late summer release. Uh, I believe the company is Miramax. Um, speaking of Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. This is one of his, uh, I guess in a crazy way, not one of his worst moments because he was so unbelievably terrible this is like you know right. the it's a shining I guess normal by it. normal yeah. for this guy yeah anyway uh directed by terry gilliam from a script by aaron Kruger, um who's uh he's written a lot of you know transformers movies stuff like that um brothers grim is a what would you call it it's like it's a i mean is it rev did you call it revision it's like yeah it's like revisionist it, fantasy Basically, it's yeah, because it's of, like it's not really revisionist because well, so, they were okay. never their own real story. Right. But well, that's what I mean. The, so the, it's like the Grim fairy tales, right? Yeah. They're were they German? What? Yes. Who? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. They're. I mean, I don't think they have a specific background in the movie, but basically, the context of the movie is: what if the Grim fairy tale, like what inspired the Grim fairy tales, 
And that's sort of the setup for the movie. And it kind of does one more. And it's basically, what if the Brothers Grimm were essentially, you know, were essentially like witch hunters and and that kind of stuff, you know, investigators of the paranormal and whatnot. And then goes one more and is like, but what if they're faking it? Right. Like what if they're they're basically Ghostbusters, right? Like that's like what it is. This is one of these movies that totally you understand why it sells in a room. Yeah. I mean, it's a great pitch. It's not even really like – it's not even, you know, uh, like rewatching it because I I remember when this movie came out and I watched it and I didn't hate it. Uh, I think also because I was – at the time I was on like a big Gilliam kick, you know, in like 05. Like I had just watched Brazil for the first time and – uh, and, you know, Baron Munchausen, I had seen as a kid, 12 Monkeys, obviously. And so, you know, I, I and even by and large, you know, I've kind of waned on Terry Gilliam. I still do really like Brazil a lot. Um, and I actually have a, I have a soft spot for Time Bandits. Can I ask you, have you seen Don Quixote? I have not yet because I'm kind of I'm kind of over him. That's like yeah, that's like the it's thing. An, I'm kind of I think there's stuff to really like in, in uh, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, but I know what you mean. I think, yeah, there. Uh, when you say the uh, waning on him, um, I understand. It's where sort you're of like the Burton that. thing too. It's like I just, you know, Burton could could go back and make a, you know, a, a return. It's funny though. A return it's, it's, to form movie or whatever yeah. that might be, and I'd probably be like, yeah, I'm okay. You know, I just. But see, yeah, but it's funny that we're talking about both of them because I think this year, 2019 alone, for the first time in a while. I, I like I enjoy Dumbo and I enjoy well, Don yeah. Quixote. So yeah, I think Dumbo's okay, yeah. Yeah, so I think you have that is an interesting, you know, two masters in the later stages I who made I think pretty for them pretty moderately interesting movies this year, but I think to your point both underperformed. I mean, you know, you know, Man Who Killed Don Quixote barely barely came out and Dumbo underperformed, you know, Compared to the other Disney, you know, uh, remakes. So, yeah, it's interesting. They're both kind of, you know, towards the end at this point. I think the other thing, too, is like just – and I won't go too deep into this, but it's like Terry Gilliam is just like such a grumpy dude that like you're just kind of – I'm just kind of like, all right, man, I'm I'm good. Like, but that said, I I, I did – I did like this movie uh, well enough when I I first saw it in 05. Um. And to your point, I get why it sells in a room, you know, like I, I, I get why it just sounds cool and good. And I'd be the big thing I'd be curious to know is what this movie's script looked like before production, because I do feel like this movie basically only takes place in like three locations. Oh, yeah. I mean, we'll get into it. But so, but yeah, I, I agree. So I will say this for the movie. Um, in rewatching it. I had a similar remembrance. I rewatched it, I think, like on Hoopla, you know, with yeah. with the idea going in that it was sneaky good, right? Like I I I I rewatched it with this thought of everybody says this is bad, but I remember thinking it was kind of creative and fun. And I will say the opening ten minutes, where you don't know it's a cold open. You're meeting the Brothers Grimm. They're here to investigate a thing. Crazy shit happens in a barn, right? It's like 
very effective. It, it's a cool action sequence. You're, you're like, what's up? And then it ends, and they've defeated, you know, the bad this witch. You know, it's like infesting a, a, a mill, haunting a mill, basically. Yeah. And, and then, and then, you know, the townspeople are so happy, and then essentially curtain comes up after the townspeople are satiated and it's all fake and it was a con and it, there are like all these ropes and smoke and mirrors and it was all this it's basically the, this like troop of actors who they travel with and complete the con you're in i'm in watching that i'm like this is you know totally interesting yeah i'm totally you know it's creative it's got that gilliam stuff kind of there's a diy nature to not necessarily the production but in internal to the movie right like they're all you know they're all dirty you know and there's this seedy kind of way they do things to con- convince the townspeople that they're actually being you know haunted and stuff and they get the satchel of you know uh their payment and you know whatever and then it just it does what a lot of these Hollywood movies that get caught up in the test screening and the, you know, Gilliam didn't have final cut and, you know, Weinstein wanted to recut it to make it more kind of family friendly and all these things that you read about. Like you're talking about, it gets lost. Like they go to another town. And of course, right in this town, what they learn is the witchcraft is real, right? So they go to basically con the people and like, you know, benefit off of their fears. And then of course have to face their own when they realize that it's not a con and it's a real thing. Okay. And it's, I don't of even course. think that's even the worst, obviously. No, no, that's of course where you, yeah, that's of yeah. course where you go with the movie. The problem is to your point, it's like they go to this town and then there's like a tower seven feet over there. And then <laughs> it is they, what it feels like. Yeah. And then they go back to the town and then there's like this place where the kids are getting taken and then they go back, you know, and it's, there's no sense of, I remember Jordan Raup saying this and I disagree with him, but I think it's a, it's a station point. I remember Jordan Raup saying this about John Carter. He, I remember him saying the big, one of the biggest problems he had with John Carter, which I, I love John, John Carter. John so. Carter, the greatest movie ever made, John Carter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I'm a big fan of John Carter, but I, I remember this was an interesting point. He said, one of the biggest problems is. It, it, it is John Carter of Mars, right? It's a story of this dude from Earth who winds up on Mars and then basically gets embroiled in this political, you know... Machiavellian uh, kind of... Fight, and he falls, in, yeah. he falls in love with the princess of Mars and this whole thing. Um, His point was simply that in the movie, in the Andrew Stanton movie, it never felt like they were on a planet and that there were like these different parts of the planet. It felt like... They filmed in a desert, and when they had to go to another part of Mars, it was like 10 miles, you know, 10 miles that way in New Mexico, right? You know what right. I mean? And I disagree with him in that respect, but I feel similar in the with the Brothers Grimm, right? It feels like there's cool set and production design, but a limited amount. And this is a scenario where people say their reach exceeded their grasp, but this is a situation where their grasp grabbed too early and they didn't reach enough. Right. And yeah. and you wonder, and you wonder, is there stuff on the cutting room floor? Right. Like it just what, feels, it, I mean, cause it doesn't, I'll say this, like it, I mean, I'm sure there is stuff on the cutting room floor slash like probably some reshoots or whatever, but it also just, it almost feels like stuff left 
you know, before maybe before production even began, you know what I mean? Where it's like it feels like maybe the script had some kind of a journey in it. Right. Where well, they where they yeah. go to the tower and get to the tower. Right. Yeah. Um but so much and but and then and then you know then the movie gets greenlit to to an extent and but it's you know it's Miramax and they're like okay well it's got to cost this much so maybe the tower is just in the woods sort of right near the village right and you're kind of like okay I, all well right. and like, you'll you'll see you'll see the budget reported on like Wikipedia at like ninety but there are definitely conflicting reports about how much it actually cost of course and if you read if you read Gilliam talking about the movie and I'll link to one of his interviews about it. There is let me let's just be clear. There is not I think he basically alludes to this. There is not some sort of like cotton club encore cut, right? There is not like we made a masterpiece and you know Harvey scissor hands took it away. It's more like what you're talking about, where in the process of actually making the movie, Gillian Gillian basically was like, fuck this. Like, fuck these people. They're taking my movie away from them. Like, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it, but I'm not happy about. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it, it's not like, you know. It, it yeah, it's more. It fell at it. It fell away based on the conflicts. Then he made it, and then they took it away. You know what I mean? Um, I also think. I mean, look straight up. I also think this is one of these movies. Damon's not very good in it. He's okay. So the big thing with this, I I was gonna ask you what you thought of a minute. Um, because the the big thing with it is they originally it's him and Heath Ledger. I don't know if we mentioned Heath. They, but they swap roles, yeah, right? They, they swapped roles and they, and they, they both like lobbied, like they both to were swap. like, we want to do this because at the time in their respective careers, they were convinced that, you know, so Will is the sort of the more assertive, confident one. And Jake is the sort of meeker kind of, you know, whimsical. He's like, you know, he's like the smart brother, but you know, doesn't, doesn't really, uh, he's like kind of soft, you know? And, um, and sensitive and both of them felt respectively that like, oh, we, we've each kind of done that too much. So we feel like we're getting pigeonholed. So they lobbied real hard with, uh, with Terry Gilliam and Gilliam was like, okay, you know what? He's like, I get it, but like, just sleep on it. Right. And then the next day they met up and Damon was like, you know, you know, you're right. I'll, I'll play Jake. Right. And Gilliam was like, no, 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 I slept on it. You're going to play well. Right. Like he's like, no, no, I, yeah, I agree with you. We're, you're going to do it. Right. And they were, everybody at the time was, was really happy. But after hearing that story, I just, I was just kind of watching the movie and thinking like, oh, it, it would be a little better. I mean, there are definitely problems this movie has that, yeah. are, that are beyond their two performances. Not, I don't think either of them are very good in it. Um, I think the movie makes the mistake. It's almost like a wild, wild west thing where we've talked about sure. this on this podcast before, where it's not enough of, of either or, right? Cause like you're saying, it's, it's a blood, it's a brother's bloomy thing where you have the one brother, you have the cad like, and then the meek one. Yeah. yeah. But, but it's okay. It Jake, Jay Grimm, who's Heath Ledger, isn't much smarter than Will Grimm. Right. And right? the movie kind of the movie kind of lets you know that actually. Like the whole right. the whole context of the, you know their conflict as as brothers and as characters is that when they were young, their sister was dying and 
Jake was sent to go trade the cow for money so that they could get their sister medicine. Medicine, yeah. And uh, and Jake comes back with beans, and he's like, "Oh, I, you know, I met a man on the side of the they're road. They're magic and, beans. And they're, they're magic, magic beans, and it'll and they'll help her." And and basically. Uh, basically, I was about to say Will Smith. Um, basically, <laughs> Mad Damon, who plays well, uh, is he holds it over him like all the time. Anytime he has like a dumb thought or whatever. And so, to your point, they kind of do illustrate him to be like you know an idiot. I mean, granted, though, I think the whole point of that is then when it all turns out to be real, you know. He's well, the, I guess I guess one. it's less it's less smart and dumb and more like open mindedness. Sure, I guess sure, that's yeah. that's that's what they're going for. But my point is simply this: there, yeah, there's not. So, for context, my Wild Wild West reference is simply that one of the problems with that movie, and this has kind of been mentioned in different commentary over the years. After when you look at the production of that movie, is there's not really a straight man in Wild Wild West, right? Will Smith and Kevin Klein are both making jokes here and there throughout the movie, and there's not really an anchor, right, to to transport you through the picture, okay? It's a similar thing with the Brothers Grimm where Matt Damon's kind of playing an asshole, right? They're both con men. Heath Ledger's kind of nice, but he's meek, and maybe he's open-minded, and they kind of imply it might be smarter, but... They don't really get to it, right? There, there's character development there that just doesn't really happen, or they gloss over it. And then there's there's a kind of uh, uh, a love interest who is primarily a love interest of Heath Ledger's, but there's there's kind of the inklings of a love triangle, but they they soft shoe around it. Yeah, it's and, a, and and it's, it's uh, she's played by uh, Lena Headey. Who, yeah, young, yeah, younger Lena Headey, yeah. like pre pre three hundred. Uh, Who she, I think, is, is the, the best, best part of the movie. movie. Yeah, I, by, I agree. By like a mile I agree. to I the point where like, you, uh, I kind of like uh, like the ham sandwich that is Peter Stormare in this movie a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, he's you know he's Stormare all over. Yeah, the place, no, it's know? like I mean he is off the chain. Like it's definitely not like a you know a nuanced performance. He plays this uh, like Italian mercenary basically right is kind of like what he is essentially let's say that yeah let's say that sure uh, yeah <laughs> whatever the hell he is. he's like an officer uh and he works for jonathan price who's also super hammy um and i think that's kind of i think that's maybe part of the problem is that the two of them as leading men are not um they're not good gilliam leading men like they're just uh, I I don't think because uh, you watch I don't know, and granted Time Bandits is a you know it's an ensemble uh, for the most part, um, but the the actors that pop in and out of out of something like Time Bandits or Baron Munchausen right everybody knows how to how to ham it right like everybody knows how to kind of go to eleven and I think that's what makes those movies it's like you know it's like um, it's like. Robert De Niro popping up in Brazil, right? Like that kind of stuff, like these, these like cartoonish, super fun performances. Um, and this movie, I mean, it has Jonathan Price, it has Peter Stormare kind of doing that, but largely that's kind of it. And I just don't think, yeah, I don't know. There's something about uh, either the way their characters are written or the way the performances that come across that just really like make it all fall flat. It's just for a movie that I will say the production design 
by and large, there's some bad CG, but but for the most part, really good production design. Uh, a lot of you know a lot of fun weird shit that pops up. There's a sequence uh, that alludes to the gingerbread man. Not alludes. I mean, becomes the gingerbread man. That is insane. Um, with you know some truly terrible CGI, but but is a uh, is just a really bonkers sequence, and it's the kind of stuff that I like in the movie. Uh, there's another sequence where uh, this girl who gets kidnapped from the village gets eaten by a horse, basically through like a giant spider's web that comes out of the horse's mouth. Like there's some really cool, weird. Yeah, that seems cool. Yeah, there's some cool, weird, fun shit in the movie, um, and I just. Yeah, I don't know. It's they, like they can't anchor it or maybe they anchor it too much. You know what I mean? Like maybe they're just yeah, not, I mean, they're playing it too straight. It's a good it's, and it's interesting you say that because Heath Ledger would then be in the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, which, which, which of course he ended up passing away before he he filmed the sections of the movie in which he's in the Imaginarium. So then um, if you remember, that's when. When he goes into the Imaginarium in that movie, he becomes Colin Farrell, then he becomes uh, Johnny Depp, and, and then he becomes Jude Law, Jude yeah. Law right? Yeah. So it's, I like. That I movie. think a pretty interesting movie, and and Ledger's just kind of way more, I don't know, in the in the right element in that movie, maybe kind of figured out working with Terry Gilliam <laughs> in that respect. But yeah, the other problem is the other problem is to that point of their their performances, they don't really have great chemistry. Yeah, you know when you think when you think about a movie like The Fisher King. You know, when you have Bridges and Robin Williams, they have great chemistry in that movie. Yeah. You know, I mean, that totally. relationship feels real, you know? Yeah. So that's the thing. I mean, it just doesn't really work on a, on a matter of different, on a number of different levels. But, you know, I guess to, in some respects, in terms of production design and, 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 and art design, worth checking out but ultimately a disappointment and, and even in rewatching it uh, it's, even more it's also, so for yeah me. it's like just shy of two hours too so it's like kind of just for a movie that takes place in two locations and and it just it largely isn't good i mean it's yeah it's tough i i would want to recommend it but it's it's sort of a hard sell agreed um all right so number three Ugh, yeah this one's tough too uh, so this number will, three it's worth mentioning before we dive into three yeah. After so after O five, he had just done Born Supremacy. Then he does uh, he does and, and Ocean's Twelve, and then he does. And also Brothers remember Grimm. with Born Supremacy, Born Supremacy, you know, Born Identity does well enough, right? It makes money, like we said. Born Supremacy is that rare sequel where it makes way more money. Yeah, right? like I, I mean, like, my my relationship with that franchise kind of actually started with Born Supremacy. I think for a lot of people. Because I had seen Identity and I didn't – I liked it. I didn't love it. Um, I remember my sister. It was like the one movie, uh, my older sister, like we went out the day that it like came out on DVD and she bought it because she had like – I mean she like loved Matt Damon. But like she like earnestly – and you know, whatever. I mean she she was right at the time because she I, – I hadn't seen it in theaters. Uh, this is Born Identity. And she was like, no, no, no. You guys got to watch this movie. It's like really fucking good. And like Matt Damon's awesome at it. And we were like, yeah, whatever. Okay. So like we we go and we, you know, I was with my brother and my sister and we get it from Best Buy and we sat on her bed and we like watched it. And I was like, oh yeah, that's pretty cool. Like I didn't, I didn't love it, but I was like, yeah, it's, you know. You were like, you're like, I always, I, I always thought Damon was a Streisand, but he's, he's rocking, rocking the shit, shit in this one. one. Um, 
Yeah, no, and, it, and it, it that's I mean, I think that's why I love that joke so much in 40 year old version, because I feel like that is everybody's exact reaction to the born identity. Yeah, 100%. Um, but but yeah, with Supremacy, I um, I went to go see it again with a I went to go see it with a, a high school buddy of mine and he really loved born identity and he was like, Oh, nobody else wants to see this with me. Do you want to go? And I was like, yeah, sure. Whatever. And I like, didn't really want to, but I was like, okay. And we walked out and I was just like, that was fucking, that was awesome. Right. I just like was really, and from then I kind of, I mean, those, I, as a little trilogy and even I kind of like legacy, uh, quite a bit in its own way, but, but as like a little trilogy, I, uh, I really dig those movies anyway. Um, after he does Supremacy, which you I, were going to mention, it was like a monster hit. Well, yeah, yeah. it just was it, it was a monster hit and it was incredibly well reviewed. You know, where like Born Identity was reviewed okay, right? People liked it. It, it, it just, it really took a leap. You know, Supremacy yeah. was everything about, you know, oh, Paul Greengrass, right? It was kind of at that point still kind of um, up and coming. That's before he makes United 93, you know? And so, Everything at that point's really flowing for Damon. And yeah, and he I mean he's he's kind of coming into his own even more than he already had. So he does he does Brother Brothers Grimm. And then he comes off of Brothers Grimm and basically goes into, you know, the beginnings of of like Oscar Matt Damon, right? He goes like on the run. There's Good Shepherd. Um, there super underrated movie. Yeah, I will say I, I almost thought about having us talk about it. I know that might have it, to be a part two. I was going to say, Shepherd. yeah, well, there, Dan and I, before we started recording, we were like, maybe one day, you know, we'll give it, well, maybe, we'll give it a, and a also, few months or something. Maybe we'll do Matt for Damon the Irishman. We could also, we could do De Niro's directed movies. Oh yeah. That's good. Because Bronx tale and uh, good shepherd are both super, I, in my opinion, super great movies. So, yeah, I don't, I will say, I don't know if Bronx tale is a B side, but yeah. I yeah I'd I'd be down with that let's let's call it a date let's do it um, yeah, yeah yeah but basically he kind of goes on his on his little sort of like Oscar run um, where and it's he you know he sandwiches in there two other you know two other blockbusters right he does uh, the third Ocean's movie and he does Born Ultimatum but basically it's the it's Syriana the Departed the Good Shepherd right uh, with like I mentioned, born and oceans 13, uh, sandwiched in there. And then he does, uh, and then he does the informant and then he does, which I would maybe say is his best performance. Probably the informant, his best performance of his career. I think so. Um, I think that's maybe, we'll come back to that, but that's way up there. Definitely. He's so, he's so impossibly good in that movie, but, um, does the informant does Invictus, uh, does Green Zone, which I feel like he was trying to almost like marry the two. You know, he's like, it was almost like right, if, right, if right, like right. I'm doing these Oscar movies, these like smart, interest, you know, quote unquote smart, heady. Well, no, no, dude, movies. dude, Matt, Matt Damon, best performance, Happy Feet too. <laughs> oh, how could I forget? I'm sorry. The voice of the voice of Bill the Krill. No, wait, it was his, it was his uh, voice performance in Ponyo, obviously. Uh, no, 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 Stallion, Stallion. No, and Ponyo. He did the he did the English. No, no, dub. I know. I'm just telling you that his voice work in Stallion is better. <laughs> <It's> better. <laughs> Spirit Stallion of the Cinnamon. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh no, sorry, Titan A, Titan A. I kind of actually really like Titan A, but um, no, yes, I know, Me dude. Too. You can't beat the dredge; they're pure energy. Um, 
<laughs> the so he does Green Zone, uh, and that movie is a thing. It's kind of whatever. Uh, well, yeah, that's right. You said that's Green Grass. Yeah, he he reteams with Green Grass, and that then, movie kind of goes off the rails in production in terms of they spend too much money. It's it's a political action thriller yeah, that's the, a bit up its a bit of a, a kind of a bit up its own ass kind of thing. It's you know it's a movie where at the end. The hero sends an email and you're meant to be like, hell yeah, that's how you do it. <laughs> right. And it's like, you're it's like, just not enough. Yeah. It's not enough. You know, not, like, not at all. And it's, I don't know. It's, uh, it, it, it's anyway, there, I will say the one thing maybe that's worth checking out with Green Zone, it's kind of a super just languid political thriller for the most part, but there is um, a really great foot chase. Um, oh my God, in, dude, in, me and you. In the you end. took it out. You took it out of my yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, there's a really great foot chase with yeah, between exactly Jason right. Isaacs and Matt Damon, and uh, that. I mean, you don't have to watch the movie. You could probably just that sequence. That I think. I think the movie. I think the movie's on streaming somewhere. I'm looking at Just Watch right now. It is worth it for that foot chase alone. Yeah. In terms of if you just find the foot chase, it's I mean that really... is that's prime green grass kind of action stuff yeah it's, um, re- it's really well done um but yeah and then you don't want to miss him sending that email either of course obviously yeah. yeah and then uh somewhere along the way he gets psychic powers and uh oh, bro it's it- it's m- more than that it's like <laughs> psychic god powers i don't know it's like some phenomenon type stuff um uh, so that brings us to uh 2010 uh with the Clint Eastwood picture, Hereafter. Now this, Dan, I really wanted to cover, A, because I had not seen it, and B, because you're a lapsed Catholic. Obviously, obviously. Um, and C... You had, you, you had not seen this before had, this podcast? I had seen like pieces of it and stuff, but I never, again, I never really... So I, I'm, I don't another, have like a huge love affair with Clint Eastwood director. I like definitely appreciate a certain number of I, his movies. Yeah, I kind of do. I kind of yeah. do. So this is a disappointment for me, for um, sure. But the thing that I really wanted to talk about this movie above the others is because I think this movie is sort of the definition of a b-side for me um in terms of like just such a fascinating like it's a movie star right and it's kind of i think i sort of was forming my thesis on matt damon while i was watching this movie like what i was going to sort of say about him with this thing and it kind of is he's a movie star who like we said made a lot of b-sides but he also is undoubtedly a movie star you know what I mean? Like there's, I don't think there's oh, yeah. any two ways about that, but it is, it's just fascinating because he's got so many movies that, um, that along the way and we'll, we'll, I'll, you know, I'll gloss over a couple of them and you'll be like, yeah, nobody remembers that movie that like, you know, are movies that got made. They're not even like throwaway movies. And this is well, kind of one of them. Like it's a, it's a studio movie, right? Yeah. With Matt Damon directed by a big auteur. Right. Uh, Clint Eastwood. Written by an Oscar winning screenwriter, Peter Morgan. Right. And it is just like, who remembers this movie? Like, do you know what I mean? Like who, like what, what, like I, you know. Now I bring, I bring her up in every episode, but there's one person who remembers it and loves it. (laughs) JM. And I think you know, and I think you, yeah, I think you know who that is. JM, Julie? JM, baby. JM. We should have her on for Robert De Niro. 
No, we should have my dad on for De Niro. Actually, yeah, that would be the move. That would be, that would great. be You know, what we should Actually, do a live, Connor. A live you know, what we should do Connor. watching the Irishman. <laughs> Connor, we're talking about hereafter. We should have your dad on <laughs> for Robert De Niro. If, Since we're talking about think, hereafter, I don't think my mom's li- my mom listens to this podcast. But if she does, uh, I'm sorry, well, you gotta, mom. And she's you like gotta cut, cut that out right now. Cut that out. <laughs> no, I'm leaving it. I'm leaving it in. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, actually, do you know what is funny though? So my dad definitely like asked me about this movie because my dad loved Clint Eastwood movies, like the movies he directed, whatever. And he definitely asked me about this movie when it came out because I think this came out. I was, I was, I think I had just like been home from college. Like I think I had like just graduated or maybe it was like right around there. And, uh, and he would just bring it up like all the time. Like he would like, it was like, like, forget. He'd he'd be like, Hey, have you seen hereafter? And I just be like, no, dad, I haven't seen here after, you know, like, but, um, I, yeah, I mean, I remember, yeah, I remember my parents asking me about it and seeing it, it feels and really like a, liking a parents it. Movie now for sure. Yeah. It's, it's similar. It's funny. I was going to say this before it's, it's similar to green zone in that there it's, well, it's forgettable in that way. And there is one scene that's incredibly memorable in Green Zone, it's that amazing foot chase. And in this movie, it's this incredibly rendered um, – is it a tsunami? Yeah. Is that a, what it is? So the weird thing about this movie uh, – well, I won't it's get to It's very this, effective, yeah, that the, opening. The, it opens yeah. basically with a with a tsunami in India. Uh, in India, I believe? Um, I'll, I'll check. Yeah. But yeah, keep going. Yeah. Um, I believe it's India or it's the Indian Ocean. I know that. It's based on a, a real thing. And um, – and basically, we're introduced to this French couple that are having an affair. Um, and uh, in the um, what's yeah, her in, name from? Yeah, in in India, a French journalist is caught in the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, yes. which was obviously okay. a, a real thing. Um, and uh, and it's uh, it's uh, Cécile de France is I, I'm like going to also. Between this, she and she's pretty good in this she's, movie. I think. I think the best part of the movie. Oh my god, um, dude! Do you know how many people died in this? Oh my god, how many? Two hundred and two hundred and thirty thousand people died in this tsunami. That's insane. Jesus. Um. Anyway, Oof. she plays this, uh, this French journalist, like t- uh, TV journalist, basically, uh, named Marie. And uh, she's there with her producer. They're having an affair. You don't necessarily know this yet. You know they're having an affair, but you don't necessarily know that they work together just yet. And uh, she goes out of the hotel to go to the market, and um, and he stays in bed. And then the tsunami hits, and it basically it opens the movie, and it is tr- like. I knew about this scene and I think I had even seen like parts of it. Like I knew that this was a thing that happened in the movie. I did not know that it opened it. And, oh, yeah. and I just literally, <laughs> I was actually, as so I was watching it yesterday and I had it on and, uh, Brittany was kind of just walking, you know, in between rooms in the apartment. And at one point I just like had to pause it. Cause I was just like, Holy shit. Like, I was just like, well, like, whoa. And yeah. it's, I, I will say, like, some of the CG hasn't aged amazingly, but generally, it's a super effective scene. Um, 
It's a super effective scene. It's really, I mean, yeah, it's just a really well choreographed, well thought out scene. And I'll say this, you know, we give a lot of, we give a lot of shit to Eastwood for being lazy or what have you. Um, A lazy director did not direct the scene. Like, do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's all post, right? There's a lot going on. There's tons of shit, tons of different elements, both in post and practically speaking to, to get a scene like this done. And, uh, it works basically all the way through. Um, it's a really, really awesome sequence. Um, she drowns, dies and comes back, goes back to her job basically and kind of zones out and then takes a leave of absence to write a book. Right. Um, yeah. And and bef- before I go any further, I'll say this movie's it's a it's an uh, you know an anthology movie. It's essentially three separate stories, uh, and you know so we'll call it a Matt Damon B side because you know he's his, it's his face on the poster basically. But he is kind of like one of three leads essentially in the movie. Um, yeah. Uh, but then basically we're introduced to Matt Damon, who uh, is a he's a dock worker or factory worker he works in like a sugar factory right in san francisco something yeah, like that he's like yeah a mild like mannered a, he's factory like a, he's yeah. like a forklift operator or whatever um and but he has this gift he's got a gift and he can communicate with people in the hereafter um and you get the sense that not get the sense it's very explicit because uh jay moore who plays his brother, which is just like, as soon as I saw Jay Moore, I was like, Oh, okay. Which is funny. Cause he plays his older brother and they're the exact same age in real life, which he I does find look, interesting. He does look older. I think Jay, sure. Jay Moore looks yeah, older for sure. Right. Um, even though Matt Damon's kind of growing salt and pepper in this too. Um, yeah. And Matt Damon, I think for the role also, he kind of puts on the dad, you know, weight. He's a little heavier. Yeah, he's like he's it's like, like the same build. It's the same build he has for We Bought a Zoo, right? And, it's like in Promised Land. Like, it's, what do they call it? Was called, they call it a Fat Damon, right? For a minute, <laughs> I think I that not, was like a thing. I did not. Know, I think that was like I, a thing. I, yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm with kind that. of a very mean, but you know, you know, you know what the whatever name is. Do you know what they called Jesse Plemons for a long time? No. Meth Damon. No. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> I mean, that like, is that is meaner. That, that is, is more mean. So mean. Um, but anyway, <laughs> um, I don't know who came up with that. I imagine it came on like on the set of Breaking Bad uh, or something like that. But um, anyway, right. Well, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I just love it because it's like he just he looks like Matt Damon did a lot of meth. Um, anyway, sorry, Jesse Plemons. Uh, well, and also it is the Breaking Bad. He's in Breaking Bad. That's what I'm saying. So. It's part. It's yeah, part. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so uh, Damon is visited by uh, Richard Kind, who asks him to. You know, he, he's introduced by Jay Moore, uh, who's his brother, and you know, basically Damon reluctantly gives Richard Kind a reading, communicates with his wife. We're very quickly introduced to to all of this, um, and. And I will say that I think it's kind of the goal of the movie, but the movie basically throws all this stuff at you in a very unassuming way, like which I kind of appreciate about the movie. It is very much just like, yeah, I don't well, know what if it this speaks was a thing? to. Like, yeah, it speaks. I think in, in a way, I, I'm not a huge fan of this movie, but I certainly think in a way it speaks to one of the best qualities of. Eastwood as a filmmaker, which is it's very matter of fact, right? It's very um, like you're talking about. 
this is what's happened. Right? It never it basically the movie never is critical of Matt Damon, right? Like the movie's never like get a load of this guy, huh? Right? right. I mean, it it's basically like this is this man who this is his truth, right? This is what he's dealing with. He has this gift, maybe it's a curse, right? And it makes his life harder, but he's trying to find purpose in it, right? All these different elements. And then the context of the journalist who had this literally life and death experience during this tragedy, and she, of course, survived and the guilt of surviving, you know, mixed with everything else. All of that is presented very in a very straightforward way, which I think in some cases, in some of his films, is interesting and helps. And I think it's interesting here. His film, but ultimately, East, Eastwood's movies. Eastwood's yeah, films. Yeah, yeah. But ultimately, it's not... I, there's never really a stand taken in this movie, and I think it ultimately is a hindrance. Yeah. The, and you I, know, I, ultimately. I think it also doesn't, frankly... I feel like this all this movie almost is like two movies, which is weird to say because it's three separate stories. But I think it's two kinds of movies that are like sort of happening. I think that like the non supernatural drama part of the movie is the more interesting movie, and um, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And it it's really weird. So the third the third leg of the movie is uh, is is a set of young um, British twins in London who essentially um you know their mother is a drug addict and they're trying like they're trying to constantly cover for her so that they don't get taken away by child protective services and um in in the process of going to the pharmacy to pick up meds for her because they they realize that she's she's had a close call and and she has you know, gotten prescription for all the meds to like wean her off the drugs basically. Um, and they realized that she's kind of starting to try and turn a new leaf. Um, on this trip to the pharmacy, one of the two twins, uh, is attacked by bullies and then runs out of the street and gets hit by a truck in a like brutal, like in a way that like kind of not unlike, uh, we talked about in our meet Joe black episode, the, car the the car crash in the beginning of that movie like the car crash that kills this twin brother is like oh if he wasn't dead there he's dead here right like it's like a one two three punch accident type thing that you're like oh okay yeah like no that kid's dead right um in effect you know effective and so basically we're following this other boy this other brother as he's coping with that and missing his brother. And so as, you know, the movie cuts between these three things, and I weirdly think that, like, the the demon being a medium part of it is what sort of makes it... I wish they had almost just come up with something else for his character and how he's connected to these other two people because I, I think it's kind of... Um, I don't know. It's just, it's like a little, yes, yeah, it's, it's a little sweaty. You know, it's just like a, it's like one ingredient too many, I think. And I think if Eastwood was just making a movie about these three people trying to cope with tragedy and then just like slowly coming together or getting connected in a certain way and get, I granted, you know, you get another one of those movies, right? That, you know, like, like a crash yeah. or a babble or whatever. And so I guess this, you know, the the supernatural aspect is what gives it that other sort of slightly interesting thing to chew on. 
But I do just think that it like it almost bogs the movie down because I do think the more human moments in the movie are some of the best. Like I actually what do you think of of Bryce Dallas Howard in this movie? She plays, by the way, a woman that yeah. uh, she plays a woman that Damon meets at a cooking class. Um, and they kind of have this meet cute and they start to form a relationship. Um, and he, you know, it's his, it's his way of trying to like lead a normal life and like actually connect to another human being. What do you, what did you think of there? Well, I, I think their chemistry, their chemistry is fine. Um, she's quite a bit younger than him, which I think it's okay in the movie. I don't think it's ultimately, you know, I think it's, it, it works well enough in the film. Yeah, I agree. I think this is a period of Bryce Dallas Howard's career where she seemed to be getting roles where she's not in the movie enough, right? I, right. I, I'm going to look at her filmography, but, no, but she I did rem- like 50-50. She was in Terminator Salvation. She, did, you know what I mean? Right. Like she was like right. popping exactly. up in movies. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, and it's weird because I, I think there's plenty to like, and you know, with Bryce Dallas Howard, and plenty to kind of. Um, I think plenty, you know, she's a very gifted actress. And also she like made the As You Like It adaptation that Kenneth Branagh directed that like ended up just like winding up on HBO. You yeah. know what I mean? It was like a lot of stuff like that happened to her for, for a period of years. And I so in terms of her performance, I, I think of it in the context of that. Like it's there's not much there there. I yeah, think. I, I agree because she does, uh, you know, I'm not going to I won't spoil it or whatever in case listeners want to watch it but i mean she does exit the picture at some point and with kind of no fanfare really you know like it's just sort of it's like she just becomes absent uh, i guess not no fanfare but like there's a reason but she right. just she does kind of just disappear and it is a little bit of a bummer because not unlike uh i feel like this movie is very similar to seven pounds and uh, in, in a certain way and not unlike that movie yeah, it's. A, I think this is a, a bit better than Seven yeah, no, Pounds, no, no. but I, yeah, I I don't want to go so far as to say I like this movie, but I definitely like was intrigued as I was watching it. You know what I mean? Like I definitely was yeah. like I was not you know bored uh, necessarily. So it's definitely. I mean, if you if you like Eastwood's movies and you haven't seen it, or you you know you like Damon's movies, uh, it's. I think it's. I think it's kind of an interesting curio for Eastwood, um, just because it's him basically trying to make like. A, like a French movie like and he he's like said that that like he was like heavily influenced by like French movies and um he didn't I don't think he ever cited you know maybe I could find it but I don't think he ever cited anybody in particular that he was trying right, to, like a specific yeah I don't think he cited anybody in particular that he was trying to emulate but he he cited sort of the quality like kind of the earnest quality of the film uh and it is a very earnest movie that I realized is kind of prevalent through uh, like a lot of Eastwood's work um, that I kind of appreciate. Like there is a very, there's, he's a, he's an earnest dude. Like what you see is what you get with him. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's just funny. Cause you know, you'd think if it's Clint Eastwood, there'd be more of like a cynicism to him, but he's a big softy. Like he's a bit, you know what I mean? It's like a bit, he's a big softy and, uh, and, yeah, and just singing about his Gran Torino sometimes. Yeah, yeah. He did the score for this movie as well, actually. And I think it's kind of nice. Um, and I will play a little bit of it right here.
one other Bryce Dallas Howard barely in it, even though it was a high-profile role movie, is Spider-Man 3. Yeah, right. She's Gwen Stacy, she's like and fourth, it, she's kind of... The fourth lead, yeah. yeah she, she's lead, there yeah. and gone. Yeah. yeah, she's like there and gone. Um, um, kind of an interesting movie nobody cared about, and I think got bad reviews that she's the co-lead in, is a movie called The Loss of a Teardrop Diamond with her and Chris that. Evans, which is basically this indie that was based on a screenplay that Tennessee Williams had written, obviously, many years ago, and they like made it. They just made the movie... You know, in the 2000s. Interesting. And it doesn't work all amazingly well, but I think it's a pretty interesting period romance. And you know, it's Chris Evans, obviously, you know, pre Captain America and, um, and uh, you know, Bryce Dallas Howard in a lead role. So that's kind of a, a soft recommend in terms of B-sides, you know. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I by and large, I by and large like her. I don't love her and everything, but I do think she's. I think they have good chemistry in this. There, like I said, similarly to Seven Pounds, there's a scene where you know they're in this cooking class, and I don't know what it is when characters cook together or eat dinner together, but uh, they have pretty good chemistry, and it's a nice little meet cute, and it's it's I think it's rendered really nicely it feels a little out of place in the movie the movie i think the biggest problem with this movie it just has like a general lack of focus which i imagine is what happens when you try and make an anthology movie to a certain degree but um right but uh that you know they have this little me cute that i think is is mostly pretty effective um for the for the brief amount of time that there it's allowed to happen on screen um but yeah, as the movie goes on, all three of our sort of main characters uh, in London and uh, France and San Francisco kind of get closer and closer together. I won't really spoil how they come together. Um, the movie also the other thing with this movie is it connects not it connects to not one but two like major disasters that happened in the mid 2000s. Yeah. Um, there's the tsunami and then there is the London two bombings from 2005, which uh, is, is sort of a scene that gets called out. And I felt a little bit weird about that when I was watching it. I was like, I don't know if, I mean, this has become something obviously in his later career, you know, that obviously uh, Eastwood, has some affinity for right i mean the the 1517 to paris sure sure the upcoming um richard jewell movie which, which is obviously about the security guard who was the hero during the atlanta olympics who then got vilified yeah. by the by the media there's a really and, good i'm just a, a sort of unrelated but uh related to richard jewell there's a really good episode of uh stuff you should know that talks about like nine cases of extremely bad luck and they one of one of those cases is yeah, they talk Jewell. about Richard Jewell and it's uh, definitely <laughs> it's a fun episode worth listening to. But that's actually how I was introduced. I like didn't remember that that's what his name was, and so I just watched the trailer when it dropped, and I'm like, oh, that's this thing. Like that's this guy. Yeah. Um, but one of the weirdest taglines I've ever seen grammatically. So it's for that movie. It's the world will know his name and the truth. And I find that to be such a weird <laughs> sentence, right? It's, it's like the world will know. It's like a run on, right? It's like yeah. the world will know his name and the truth. <laughs> like you're, yeah, it's you're, like, uh, you're, you're right. sandwiching it in there right at, right at the end. It's sort of, I feel like that, that almost <laughs> feels like, 
like some kind of a creative note where they were like, oh, what's the tagline? The world will know the truth. No, the world will know his name because the name, his name's the title of the movie. And then someone was like, guys, let's just do both. Okay, let's do, we'll do both. And it's yeah, like, that's I, how they like landed on it. Every time I see that trailer, I'm like, wait, wait, and, and, and the, the truth, tr- and the truth, and the truth. Or maybe they're in like, in this calling, economy, maybe they're calling out the truth as a subject. You know, maybe his like, name, the truth will know the name, will know his name. Like, and the truth yeah it's like the world will know his name and the truth too also as well also as well <laughs> anyway but so this is the first of two uh eastwood movies that damon makes because then i think in the next year no, right he makes one. he made invictus oh okay sorry so, i'm sorry yeah. he had already made invictus so yes. this is his second his okay second. so he oh, makes yeah. invictus you mentioned gets that nomination now yeah so he made invictus first and then uh and then hereafter it was the was right. the reteam invictus which is one of the most boring movies ever made um <laughs> i i do not like that film but um i i do i think this is better than invictus yeah i would agree with it's that. just more interesting and i think like i think part of what really drew me to this movie and it's you know I, it's not really great or anything but i think what kind of drew me to, to it a little more is and uh, has less to do with damon and more where it stands in like eastwood's career as a director i just think it's like a really interesting movie that he like decided to make um but uh, and, and again not you know certainly not lazily you know what i mean like it's not it's it, there's a gigantic well, the, there the are a couple la- gigantic the, set pieces you know I, what i mean yeah the lazy thing the lazy thing with eastwood i find a bit reductive i know what you're saying yeah. and i know that's not necessarily you're 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 saying that's kind of a, a perception a commentary yeah. I, I there's a, so it's it's this thing of the you know the guy has short work days, right? You know, like I mean, Richard Jewell, he made in like right from from I, from like now, pre to post, he did it in what like nine months, right? Like right, exactly. Like no, that. no, no. So Less? I think there's an right there's an efficiency in that he works within. I think some people can be critical of it, where it's like sometimes you should take a little bit more time, right? Okay, I understand that, but I think in other like in other. I, I guess my point is I don't think it's laziness or like, you know, something that negative. I think it is just the way he works. And I think, for example, something like The Mule, right, which in a lot of cases, these scripts that he makes, they're in early draft stages, earlier than most other scripts that get made, right? So something like The Mule he finds it or someone pitches it to him or whatever and he and he just makes it right like nick shank writes it and he makes it and there aren't a lot of rewrites you know right. what i'm saying something like hereafter to your point that might be an example of maybe if it's not clint and it's somebody who's kind of more locked in and you know um whatever committed to like that more hollywood system of rewrites and approved drafts Maybe you crack it a little bit more. You know what I mean? Like, I think sometimes, and a lot of times, it can overcomplicate something and it become it can become like a Brothers Grimm situation where it gets messy. In this case, another draft might have helped hereafter, right? But I think a lot of times with Eastwood, a movie like Bloodwork, which is a very kind of fun, economical murder mystery movie, if you make it more complicated and you get a bunch of drafts, it's probably a little bit less, I don't know, efficient and, and entertaining, you know? So that's the thing. I, I think it depends with Eastwood. And I think 
ultimately the way that he makes his movies there's so much to like like i don't know man i love the mule right like i just some some of the ones he's made recently i really think he's he he still has you know he's still he, like well, sully he, also I, I, you I know sully think, also is yeah. just so you know I, short I, and entertaining and punchy yeah I and know. i think he also i think he gets a lot of shit obviously ever since you know baby gate Right with with American Sniper, I feel like that's Baby what really Kate, brought. Right. I feel like that's what made, really brought all this to the fore. But like, to your point, yeah, that maybe that maybe you know that fake infant highlights, um, you know, maybe some some pitfalls in the way that he decides to make his movies for sure. But like, y- y- watch American Sniper and tell me, and I don't particularly love that movie by any means. But again, it's like certainly not made by a dude who's like asleep at the wheel you know what i mean no like it's, no exactly it, and, and exactly. none of these movies are right like even hereafter right. I, it's also worth noting um that i do think part of the reason this movie may feel overcooked is because it was a little bit they had to stop production at one point um i think early on maybe not actually maybe not stop production um because you know it's a three it's sort of a three-part story so I'm, I'm wondering if maybe they just shot the other stuff but uh clint eastwood put off shooting matt damon in the movie um because he had to go shoot the the, inju- the adjustment bureau and, and thank and thank god because yeah. i love the adjustment I, okay bureau. i well that's why i bring it up because i did want to use it as a segue we don't have to talk about it really i just i do want to talk about it because i feel like you and i are like two of four people who really like that movie um Love that movie. That is a movie. You know what that movie is? That movie's Dan Mechacor, for yeah. sure. Yes. That movie yes. is 1000% Dan. I Matt know, Damon. I know Corey Everett's and listening, we, and I know and he's kinda, cheering yeah, right now. I don't, have we got, have we even glossed over We Bought a Zoo yet? Because that movie is also uh, 1000% Dan Mechacor. Any Cameron Crowe <laughs> film uh, is t- t- certainly Dan Mechacor. But, and you know what I say to that? Aloha, baby. Yeah, Aloha. Aloha. <laughs> I feel like you and I kind of didn't hate that movie when we saw it. <laughs> Dan Mechacore, baby. Dan <laughs> um, Actually, uh, unrelated, but kind of whatever. I'm just going to say it. Uh, it is worth seeking out Alex Ross Perry's defense of Aloha and not really defending so much the movie as so much like what the movie is and what and 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 the reason I bring it up is because I feel like it applies to a few Damon movies uh in his filmography as well is just that again that earnestness you know like and yeah. and it's it's what brings you to We Bought a Zoo it's what brings you to the Adjustment Bureau um let me I, let me let me just tell you something about We Bought a Zoo okay movie gets a lot of shit okay I don't <laughs> I don't, I'm gonna let I don't, you. I'm gonna. You know, no, no, I'm gonna no. I don't. I don't even I'm love. Let you just take this okay. away. <laughs> I don't even. I don't even love. We bought a zoo, but this is my thing, and this is yeah, to your point about Alex Ross Perry's defense of Aloha. There is a scene at the end of We Bought a Zoo, okay, in which now obviously this is not a this is not really a spoilery movie at all, right? It's like the kindest movie ever made. Wait, but, but do they buy the zoo though? They buy zoo very oh, early fuck. on. And of course, in the movie, Matt Damon is a widow. Okay. At the end of the movie, they go to the restaurant where I believe Matt Damon's father, the fa- you know the character he's playing, had met uh, his wife and his kids' uh, mom, and they sit down, and 
Matt Damon is telling his kids the story of like how he asked their mom out on a date. And as he's telling the story, he like turns to like where she was sitting or whatever, like in the restaurant. And they all look and the, and the mom is sitting there and they're all looking at the mom and they all smile. And it is such, I, I, I'm like two seconds away from crying right now. It is <laughs> well, so such a beautiful, I'm t- dude. It, it's like this is the shit I'm talking about. Like we're talking about these scenes in these movies, right? Like okay, great scene in Green Zone, great scene. Part of the reason that we do the show, and I feel like I say this a lot, but I'll say it a million times more. It's say for, it for shit the first timers, like, you know. It, but it, yeah, it's for shit like what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's like. People make these movies, man, and they get forgotten, and that's okay, right? I mean, this is the this is the deal, right? Like, you don't have to remember hereafter. It's you know, not the movies all, it's get not made all in a stick, you know. Yeah, it's the art, right? Yeah. The art gets made, and then the people choose what they want the art to be. Like, if you like Avengers Endgame, you fucking like it. It's fine. You know what I mean? Like, that's the point. I I like it. I'm not. That's not you, the point. Is simply like, you like what you like. Don't feel bad about liking it, right? But what I'm simply saying is. With the hereafter, with the green zone, with these forgotten, with Jerry, you know, more than anything, because, you know, it's such a small movie. There are these moments where it all works, right? And We Bought a Zoo isn't really a B-side. It was a modest hit, you know, Christmas movie. But at the end of that movie, whether you think that movie's silly or not, it's such an affecting scene. Oh, my God. And obviously, if you're with the characters a little bit more, it's more affecting. But I, I guess the point is simply, you know... It's such a treasure to watch these movies, even if they're not great, because you will discover things like just like reading a a book, right? Like there's a million books I've read that I don't love, but there are passages that I still remember. Do you know what I mean? Like it doesn't have to be start to finish, right? You know, there's the, I believe, what is it? The Howard Hawks quote, you know, a great movie, you know, there's a great movie has three great scenes and no bad ones, right? You know? Every movie's not great, of course, but even the okay movies or even the bad movies have moments that will stay with you in a lot of different cases, right? So I think I think with the case of something like We Bought a Zoo, and again, the reason I wanted to just make this quick pit stop with like talking about that movie and Adjustment Bureau is because I do think they highlight what I what I think most people, maybe not now. I feel like in the, I feel like I feel like. Damon kind of has generally maybe fallen out of favor. I actually even asked people about that today. I was like, hey, guys, I, I was working with some people today, and I was like, apropos of nothing, just because I want to know, what are your thoughts on Matt Damon, right? Like, what do you think? And then most most people were like, yeah, I guess I like Matt Damon, right? And another one was like, I don't really think about him at all. But like, Well, I mean, he's but, put his foot in his mouth a couple yeah, times. I, I think, and, you know. and I think, you know, just in, in the world we live in today, I think sometimes that goes a long way to make people just like not really want to hear from you for a minute, right? That said... Um, well, and, and look, and to Matt Damon's credit, when I think, I think the last time he put his foot in his mouth, he literally, I think he has a quote saying like, you know, I'm going to shut up and listen for, uh, for a little while. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, Acknowledging yeah, yeah. And, that and he knows. And it's, and it's super smart. And I think, because I, I, my point is, even despite that, I think what drives him towards these kinds of movies and in these kinds of movies and in other movies that aren't even like this is his just general affability, right? Like there is a – he he is a 
like a he's a Frank Capra leading man, right? Like, and I think that's 100%. why I think that's why he works so well. And we bought a zoo. I think Dan, like one of the few moments where I was like, oh, this dude's definitely my best friend, is the time that like we were at a bar, and I just randomly was like, like again, apropos of nothing, I was just like, do you ever stop and think that? maybe Cameron Crowe and you're like, maybe he's the Frank Capra of our time. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Like, and it's, and it's, it's a thousand percent true, but it's, I think it highlights with Damon, like this thing that like he is, he's just, I don't know. He's got that, like, he's got a warmth to him and a quality to him that I think helps him really oscillate really well um in his even better performances between like affability and punchability like i think that's what i think that's what makes his performance in the departed so amazing is like you're both like oh i kind of like this guy and at this by the end of the movie you're like no like shoot him in the head please like you know um but i i think actually even you know, rewatching, I didn't really love this movie when I first saw it and I still don't really love it now, but rewatching his performance in interstellar, which is just like a choice. Um, I kind of think it's like inspired, um, in terms of the casting because it's like, well, and also that the Martian came out like like the next year and it was like the version, like it's literally what you thought, the character in Interstellar, what you know what I mean? It's, right. it's, it's an like, interesting. It's like if he's if his character, and I guess pairing. whatever loose spoilers for Interstellar or whatever. But it's like if his character succeeds in Interstellar, he he goes back to humanity, and the movie that gets right. made about his life is The Martian, right? Like it's like that kind of thing. Right. But it, in real life, that dude's a piece of shit. And so when rewatching that movie, I kind of really appreciated. I, I don't. I still don't love the performance itself. But the casting move and just the general nature of it, I um, I thought was super smart. That said, I think, you know, so you go through you go through these movies, you go through Adjustment Bureau, um, you go through, um, you know, you get you get through. He gets nominated for The Martian again. In in between there, he also does Promised Land, like we talked about, which is sort of another one of those movies, a very like every man Damon kind of you know likability type thing um and so obviously something he he slips into really easily he does elysium which you know we could uh, like a lot of these movies talk about as a b-side that's sort of a it's not really a flop but it's you know again yeah, yeah uh, i mean it doesn't you know it's, it's blom camp it's it it's definitely really a disappointment. Hit. Yeah, it doesn't right? really hit. It's, yeah. it's it's the next movie from the guy who made District Nine, which was this you know, crazy. Yeah, they spent a lot of money. Yeah, yeah run, it's a Sony TriStar movie. Yeah, you know, best picture nominee, lest we forget, yeah. right? Like, you know, and then this is what he follows it up with. It definitely felt underwhelming at the time. I haven't rewatched it. I, you know, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's social sci-fi. You know, it's it's Jodie Foster gives a pretty cool performance. I mean. Yeah, it's a limited thing. I mean, I think there are moments in it. Charlton Copley's off the leash in that one, which I guess is kind of a normal thing with him. But, you know, um, yeah, it leaves a bit to be desired in my memory. I haven't seen it since theaters. Um, but, yeah, I, this is, you know, as we as we get to the Great Wall, which is our last one, and yeah. I don't know that we need to, you know, well, I don't think we go need to crazy the too much, with the I, Great Wall. Yeah. But it's a weird time in his career when The Great Wall comes out. Like we said, Jason Bourne comes out right before The Great Wall and does well, though it's kind of regarded as, 
you know, the least of the four, um, you know, Matt Damon born movies. And for my money, I mean, the least of the five born movies, because I think in a lot of respects, the born legacy is kind of an underrated, uh, movie, but, um, this one, the great wall, you know, he, so he gets the fourth born movie. It's a hit. And then this movie is by all accounts, a flop. It loses, um, uh, it loses, it was a Warner brothers, you know, it loses the studio, at least $75 million reports say, uh, it's, um, uh, universal, universal, universal. Sorry. Yeah. Um, it's a legendary movie and this is kind of the end of, you know, the Thomas Tull legendary period where they're, you know, a lot of, you see the logo on a lot of big movies during this time, right? That period's kind of over in that capacity. Um, and this movie is one of the bigger failures, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's, uh, I believe it's the, it's one of the first movies filmed entirely in China, right? It, uh, it's the whole, well, it's the first. It's definitely the first co-production, right? And um, it's, uh, and I guess Amer- I mean American movies in that respect. Yeah, it is, I believe uh, it may have been surpassed, uh, you know, in the last couple of years since. But uh, at the time, it was the most expensive Chinese movie ever made. Um, and it's a it's uh, Zhang Yimou. Uh, who directed Hero, also directed... Um, Love. Yeah, yeah, great director. Yeah, great director. Also directed House of Flying Daggers and uh, Curse of the Golden Flower, right? Yep, 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 yep. Um, I didn't really love House of Flying Daggers. I do... Uh, Curse of the Golden Flower is pretty cool. Um, oh, I like... Yeah, I'm a big fan of all three of those. That, yeah. I mean, he's directed, obviously, plenty more. Those are kind of the... Those are like the big... Those are the big transports. You know, Hero yeah. is... It kind of gets the... Quentin Tarantino presents, if you remember, yep, yep, yep. Um, and that's Jet Li, and that's O two, and that's a kind of movie. that's I, a really cool movie. House yeah. of Flying Daggers is really cool. Curse of the Golden Flower, and then he also does Riding Alone for Thousands of Miles in that time period, and he, he does the remake of um, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, right. which is a woman, a gun, and a noodle shop. Uh, and then he also does The Flowers of War, which is the movie. Uh, uh, that Christian Bale's in. Oh, right. That's and right. And that's before well, he the, the he, great... He plays the priest, like, right? Well, he's not He's not a priest. He, he's like pretending to be a priest. Oh, okay. Right? Copy so, that. And then, and then the Great Wall comes out. And so that... This, he's kind of... You know, they're filming in China, but with American, you know, movie stars in, in that respect. And um, yeah, I mean, a, a truly great action director. And look, there's great action in the Great yeah, Wall. Yeah, I, I was gonna say. So I, I reviewed this. I remember I reviewed it when it came out, and I don't, I don't, you know, I don't remember exactly what I gave it. I think I gave it like a C. I think I gave it like a C, something, something there. And I, I will say, so I I'm, I'm it. looking it up. Oh yeah, tell yeah, tell me. Yeah. Um, I rewatched it last night, and like, if I didn't give it a C, I'll give it a C plus. Because frankly, rewatching this movie, and I think rewatching, especially removing it from kind of the online backlash when it was coming out. Um, it, you know, it, it works pretty well. Like it's, it's dumb, you know, like it's not, you know, it's not like it's pretty, it's kind of, it's dumb, but it's basically like, it's a good, I think it's, it's a good creature. For, I and think it's, it's a good creature. Feature. And it's a good adventure movie. It's also, this is another thing worth noting Anybody who listens to this show knows that we love this. It is under two hours. This movie, before credits, is one thirty-five. Yeah, and uh, and the and credits are very long. 
So it's like it's it's like basically a ninety minute movie, right? Yeah. And, and I don't I don't want to get in trouble here, but one of my things when I talk about this movie is I will contend that I don't really think it's a white savior. No, th- movie. I, that's what I was going to say, and I like I I kind of didn't think that when I first saw it. And again, being even more far removed from that controversy, I will say this, obviously, you st- it still falls into the trap of, you know, you're making a movie about the Grey Wall, you know, with, to, to the movie's credit, obviously, but basically an entirely Chinese cast, right? Um, outside of, you know, literally three actors in Willem Dafoe. And Pedro Pascal and Matt Damon, who are outsiders in the movie, right? So it all feels very appropriate. I understand, I guess, I understand the, you know, the irksome nature of focusing the story on a white person, right? Like I, I get that. So I, I can, I can. But he, is, he is a co-lead in the movie. I, that's what I was just going to say. So I think that's where this movie kind of you know, at least tries to skirt it a little bit to, to, to its credit is that of all the movies and you and I have brought this up a couple times on this show with, you know, talking about last samurai and dances with wolves and, uh, all, all that, you know, this, I think least of all of any of those movies is a white savior movie because the movie is like directly about him getting one upped every time he essentially tries to like save the day to a certain regard and right. uh and in fact is not allowed to do it on his own right uh if anything it's more a movie about like you know people crossing borders and working together or whatever you want to say i mean it's a to be fair to the movie's distractors it's a broad movie and it's not really meant to do much more than what it does which I think is basically really entertaining. Like it, it, it's essentially consists of three or four major set pieces that because it's, uh, that because it's Zhang Yimou, it are all wonderfully created and are just like luscious to look at. Right. Um, yeah. Like this is a movie. I feel like we lose this with, with every passing year in Hollywood. This is a movie that has colors. Yes, it, it, it's a movie that like there look, are it, colors. Yeah, it looks in this like movie. something. It's it's wonderful. Right. Um, and really, I think like truly inspired set pieces. Like it's an inventive, interesting, fun little piece of uh, of epic fantasy. I think. Um, that said, again, I'm not trying to like, you know, I'm not trying to make it sound like some amazing thing. It's not like the movie definitely has problems, but it's by and large, you know. Certainly, I like. I wasn't bored by it. I think Damon is okay in it. Um, the accent is really tough. I think. I think they try and get around it. Basically, quick, quick. You know, context synopses. Uh, Damon um, it, it plays a man named William, who's a you know sort of self-proclaimed man of many flags. He's essentially a, a soldier of fortune, right? He's a, he's like a mercenary. Uh, he and Pedro Pascal. And they are uh, running away from just a series of people chasing after them in the desert. They escape in the night and, um, and in the night are attacked by something, some mysterious animal. And one of them is killed and Damon sort of in the, in the fray in a fluke manages to chop off its arm, this, this 
creature's arm, right? Right. They then get captured at the Great Wall, he and Pedro Pascal, and they are forced to sort of onlook while tied up uh, this onslaught that happens at the wall and all of these creatures that are called the Tao Te um, are attacking the wall. And they're basically these big, you know, like Komodo dragon lizard things, some kind of a cross between like a Komodo dragon and like the zombies from World War Z. Like they're just these like hordes of like terrifying creatures, basically. And, um, and essentially, I mean, that's basically the setup after the battle in which Damon and Pedro Pascal kind of wind up fighting in saving one soldier's life. Um, after the battle, they get set free, but they're basically like, you know, but you can't, you can't leave the wall. And they are sort of privy to by Willem Dafoe. That is that there is a bunch of, you know, black powder, essentially gunpowder stored at the wall. And that's what they came to China to get anyway. So they basically are thinking like, okay, in the, in the midst of all this chaos, we're going to steal some, make a run for yeah, it. We're yeah. steal some black powder and we're going to escape. Right. And Damon along the way, essentially, you know, grows a conscience, decides to stay and help. It's a, obviously it's very, it's like all very by the numbers. And again, I can't stress it enough, like very quick, like this movie just moves. It's like very efficient. Um, yeah, and then there's this like there's this political turmoil happening within the society on the wall, right? Yeah. Like this Chinese, um, you know, community, obviously, where is she? Is she like the princess in that? She's a no. She's like a she's a commander, right? But um, but like with but with a but like with royalty, right? Like there's yeah, like yeah, there's exactly. like a predisposed like ruling nature thing with yeah. her and, and she's also like a badass yeah. you know soldier yeah uh, it's, uh and the actress is uh tian jing um played her character's name is lin may uh but uh but yeah she's basically you know damon's damon's counterpart yeah, they're, right they're like the co-leads i was mentioning yeah, earlier yeah, yeah. I, she's yeah. damon's counterpart and she i mean it's great because she just it's the it's the one thing that i think smartly keeps the movie from slipping into something that's too cringeworthy uh because she constantly just like one-ups him at every turn and like basically is like listen you fucking idiot outsider like you don't know right and like and that's the whole point is that he doesn't know right now i think i mean i guess i guess where the white savior ness um comes in more is in how they sold the movie right where you know, it's his huge face the on a is, I, that frankly, says the Great Wall, right? More you know, than I like get any that. other movie has been a face on a poster. This movie is just a, like a meaty Matt Damon face on a poster. Just yeah, do yourself right. the favor, just look now, up the Great Wall poster real now, quick. I would, I would argue that that's more of a reflection of Universal having no faith sure. in a movie that they didn't like, yeah. and it coming out in the United States after underperforming everywhere else in the world and they were just like, well, fuck it. We're going to put Matt Damon's just phase of the poster because, you know, we'll just bet, um, you know, that like, movie stardom basically, you know, yeah. that a little, that a few more people will go to see it because of it. So that's kind of where my mind goes to, but I do understand. I do understand the problematic nature of a, a, a white movie stars face being on a, 
you know, a poster for a movie that's yeah, and it, you know, I, set at the Great And wall. to your point, I think sort of the, the unfortunate nature of the movie is that in the grand scheme of most blockbusters of this size and scope, it's like totally fine. You know what I mean? In terms of like its general, yeah. in terms of its general quality. Um, but, um, but yeah, there is. It also, one... it also, it also has a story by credit um, from <laughs> Ed oh, Zwick and Marshall yeah, Hershowitz, actually, who, I, I, who he, <laughs> Zwick directed the Last Samurai. Yeah, so no. that is so another it's funny. Like, thing. A, I mean, that's the yeah. It's, to be fair, also, it's like all white writers. It's like all you know what I mean. Like, it's all yeah. So now, Connor, yeah. Do you know? Do you want to know what you gave this movie when you reviewed oh, it? Oh God, in, what did I do? fucking? In, in, no, no, no. In the year it was, yeah, twenty seventeen. Yeah. Um, you gave it a C plus. Oh, okay, good. So you already were kind of yeah, okay. So doing I was already like semi positive on it. Okay, you said yeah. that Willem Dafoe was wholly wasted, which is true. Yes, correct. What else did I say? Um, Actually, I don't need. I don't even <laughs> all right, so let's here we go. <laughs> Starting from the top. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, I guess maybe but yeah, maybe we'll link I to mean, it. Whatever you could read the film yeah, statement. Yeah, yeah, we'll sure. link to it. Yeah. Um, um, I was gonna say okay. Now, unless you have anything more to say nah, about the great wall i do I'm, just want to say there is a good bit i think he and pedro pascal actually have pretty good chemistry and there is a good bit of like butch and sun dancing with the two oh, of yes. them and it, it's funny it, you say that in your review bro yeah do i really yes you do oh funny okay um yeah. anyway no but it, it, there's a there's a scene where where damon goes into like some fog to try and wrangle one of these uh one of these creatures and it's a, you know, it's a cool, it's a cool, awesome scene. Basically all of the archers, there's a lot of cool, just archery technology in the movie and stuff like that. A lot of really inventive ways of killing giant green monsters. Um, and, uh, and there's a scene where they go into the fog and to be able to hear them in the fog, they shoot these arrows at the monsters that have whistles in them so that as the monsters are running through the fog, you can hear the whistle get closer. And then that's how you know like where they are. It's a really, again, it's a really well, like most of the movie, it's like well-directed, just competently competently put together. Um, ends in a giant stained glass tower, which is like really beautiful so cool. and dope. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. If I, I would just say if it's, you know, don't spend money on it necessarily, but if it's streaming somewhere, um, you know, take 95 minutes and, and watch it on like a lazy Sunday and I, you know, maybe you won't regret it. So let me ask you, these four movies, what's your ranking? I got to go. I got to go Jerry Great Wall hereafter uh, Brothers Grimm. Oh, only way to go, dude. Me yeah, too. I think oh, that's I, the maybe, only way to go. Maybe, I mean, maybe no, no, because Great Wall is way more entertaining than Hereafter, and it's shorter. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, that would maybe be the only thing I'd swap. But I, that that I think I got to do because Jerry's, I think, er, like if it, you know, Jerry is earnestly, a, like I think, a, a great movie, um, and like a, just a super fascinating one for all the reasons we mentioned. And Great Wall, I just think, is like a fine you know, a fine use of your time fun movie. and yeah. hereafter is kind of just a little bit more of kind of a curio. If you're really, if you, again, if you're sort of a Eastwood completionist or a Damon completionist or, you know, whatever. Um, I think, uh, it's, it's definitely got some semi-interesting things in it, but, um, and you know, brothers grim, I, I don't know, I guess. Yeah. If you're a, like, if, if, if yeah, Matt Damon in a Gilliam movie, 
or if you want to crush through the whole and also Heath damon does you know like i don't know yeah like, damon has a small role in the zero theorem as well yes yeah which what is another i feel like we could do a whole episode on just mad damon cameos i know it, it's true it's true he's made he's a lot of cameos so many he's done so many like I, I think maybe more than any other movie star of his yeah caliber. that would i would be curious if there's a competitor in terms of like the amount of because he's in a lot of kevin smith movies he's in a lot he's in a lot of movies yeah he's you know, in, ben like, affleck's in, in a bunch too, too but uh, right he's in uh he's in the end of finding forrester bro Right, which is, you know, I mean, that's a nod to Good Will Hunting because it's directed by, Ghost it's essentially, Man. it's essentially, you know, Good Will Hunting, but with, you know, they, they they go from the Boston projects to like, you know, I, th- I believe it's it, New York, right? It's I think Syracuse, it's Syracuse, like, isn't it? Aren't they in no, Syracuse? Doesn't, isn't that no, where he I plays think basketball? No, I, no, no, he. No, because he goes to no. I think it's a prep school in New York. No, 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 no. no, I'm sorry. No, because I think yeah, I think he goes to a a school outside of New York. um, But the movie is set in New York, I believe, because. And actually, no, I think I'm misspeaking because yeah, I think it's all in New York because there's a scene in that movie where Busta Rhymes, um, works at Yankee Stadium. Oh, right. And takes Sean Connery, whose character is basically like a version of uh, J.D. Salinger, to like Yankee Stadium after hours because it was like the last time Sean Connery had with his brother. Yeah. Uh, you know, right. a, I don't, uh, not to bring this insulting <laughs> phrase back again, that's another heavy Dan Mechacore movie yes, that I kind of that, sure. that I, that I kind of sure. like. I, I don't. Um, I don't really hate that movie. I remember. I remember kind of being very fond of it when I saw it many, 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 many years ago. Um, but, but anyway, there's a yeah. He has a cameo a at the end. Cameo. That's like a good Will Hunting shout out. Other, kind of. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple other notable ones. I mean, um, he's in Jersey Girls. One of the two executives right. laughing at Ben Affleck because he said something stupid to Will Smith when he was a a talent agent. There's like a whole thing in that. Um, I mean, he's in, yeah, he's in like a lot of the, you know, he's yeah. in a lot of Kevin Another Smith Another movie things. I'll mention real quick, actually, because uh, I do think this movie is under, I, well, maybe not underrated, but maybe like under seen, seen. Not, uh, is uh, Contagion. I just want to shout out real quick. Yeah, I, I, a, mo- I, a, a I modest really like hit, um, you know, a modest hit, but but I think under remembered. Yeah. Um, my favorite story about Contagion is I saw a press screening of that movie in New York, Pack Theater. It must have been like the Regal Times Square. Sure. And Pack Theater, um, everybody is watching the movie and somebody coughs like in the theater. <laughs> you got the four D and the four you could D feel you could feel the whole theater go <gasps> like <laughs> like tense up, like get very like oh, wrong. Good. Wrong cough, That's wrong really place. Good. Yeah, That's yeah. Really good. I, lo- I always love that memory. Yeah, I, I just, I, yeah, I want to shout out that movie because I actually do think that Damon does. Damon actually does really good work in it, uh, and, and does, mo- yeah. a lot of other people actually do as well. Um, and I feel like, yeah, I feel like people just totally forgot about it. But um, now. I know what I want Matt Damon to do, and that's, um, I mean. There's two things. I would love for him to do another Jerry type of scenario where he's basically experimenting. I I, I would bet 
that at this stage in his career where he's had he has had success like the most recent born like the martian but he's also had stuff like downsizing and suburbicom which have really been disappointments so i would be surprised that matt damon would do that that being said the next best thing i think is kind of happening which is he has co-written a screenplay with Ben Affleck, I think with an, with another draft by Nicole Halfsner, who I love, yeah. um, called The Last Duel, which is going to star Ben Affleck and Matt Damon and Jodie Comer, uh, Jodie Comer from Killing Eve, and it's called The Last Duel, and it's and it's directed by Ridley Scott, and so it's The Duelists. So I mean, hey man, I love <laughs> The Duelists, and so you know. Is it really Matt, the duelists though? Like, is that the plot of the? No, no, no. It's based on this. Um, it was covered a little bit because it's. I think it's a revenge uh, movie that's based. I think based on a real thing from way back when. Yeah, yeah. I think I believe it's based on a book. I'm looking it up, but anyway, I am excited that that's getting made, and I hope that does happen because it does seem. Um, you know, I just like the idea of. You know, then, you know, Ben Affleck, Matt Damon working with a great director, you know. Sure. Um, to- totally. So. I also, um, do you think it's going to yeah, make all novel the by, Novel by, <laughs> a novel by Eric Jaeger. Yeah. Um, um, did you, I think he's also, he's, he's playing, uh, he's playing RFK. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that's, yeah, that's. Uh, I don't know how close that is to actually happening, but I know that's definitely something that, Matt's that, that on the horizon. That feels like prime casting. That does. That feels like that does feel like how has right. he not already played Bobby Kennedy? I think he's got to do it sooner rather than later, though, because he's I think already older than RFK ever was. That's true. <laughs> Sad. Yeah, but yes, true. But um, um, yeah, I don't know. In terms of, what I was thinking about this. I think in terms of what I'd like to see him do next, um, I. I, I was gonna say I would love to see him work with Cameron Crowe again, um, just because I also want to see Cameron Crowe again, you know. But um, yeah, but uh, but I but the, as we've kind of been talking about this filmography, I feel like he's he has made sort of so many um, of those re, you know those really sort of earnest uh, type you know Capra esque movies. Downsizing kind of feels like one of them to a certain degree. Um, as well. So I feel like he's kind of been doing that and he's again, still working with, with really, really, you know, solid filmmakers. Um, so I, my big thing I think would be, I would love to see him. Um, I think I'd love to see him work with Scorsese again. Yeah. I mean, but in like uh, a, I think in something, you know, like what have we ever really seen? Like, Crazy Damon. Crazy Damon. I mean, you know. Like, oh, hey, that reminds me another great cameo. Um, Eurotrip. Scotty doesn't <laughs> yes, know. Yes, that is actually yeah. yeah. All I remember, not all I remember about that scene, but the one thing that always sticks in my mind is at the very end of that scene when he just goes, Lah! exactly, which, which I am gonna put right here. That movie also has a line I love where I believe it's Eric Christian Holson sees the two girls in the hot tub and he just walks, walks through the bushes and plops into the hot tub and just goes, this isn't where I park my car. I, can I tell you, I still say that line to this day. I still say that line. Yeah. That is a great yeah. line. And what a fucking pair of buffoons we are. 
Um, this isn't where I park my car. But I guess not. But to the point of Crazy Damon, like, like, would it work? I guess I'd I, like, maybe, to I guess I'd like, like to see it. I guess I'd like to see it. Like Matt Damon plays a serial killer type thing? Yeah, or like maybe not serial killer. Maybe that's like too evil. But um, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of the right performance to compare it to. I, I would just be curious to see what he looks like a little, a little unhinged. Um, that I do think if you were to look across the scope of his filmography, the reason we've never gotten Crazy Damon is because I think by and large – his appeal is it is directly rooted in that affability that every man and a general warmth and sensitivity so yeah when you lose that in any capacity it just doesn't work like he's not for instance i feel like part of the reason he's wrong for elysium is elysium doesn't need to be matt damon it needs to be someone like a little harder you know right um and I think, you know, it, like I said, the reason he's such he's so perfect for The Departed is because he's a dude who's like trying to be strong, but it's just pathetic, right? Like uh, same thing, obviously, with his brief cameo in Interstellar. Um, I, it's what drives The Martian. Like I like I feel like if, if you win a best, you know, if The Martian were to have won Best Picture, give the Oscar to Damon. You know what I mean? Like it's like he I mean, it's granted that's an ensemble movie and everybody does great work. But I do think like part of the reason that movie even feels plausible is because of his general uh, likability in that movie. Um, so, yeah, I think I kind of it's I don't know if he ever stopped doing the thing that I want him to do. So in that regard, I am very excited for um, for Ford v. Ferrari. I think I, I, I have a gut feeling that it's just going to be another one of those movies that maybe just doesn't really go anywhere because just doesn't feel like the kind of movie people want to see anymore, but it's definitely the movie kind of movie that I would love to, you know, obviously keep getting made. Yeah. Um, and it's Mangold. Hopefully Mangold comes through. So, you know, if you're listening now, hopefully it's had a little bit of traction and we'll see. It's a little long. That's okay. We're going to, we're, we're going to, how long is it? We're going to give it the benefit of the doubt. It's uh two and a half hours. Long. Oh my it's okay. It'll I, be all right. I almost went to go see Motherless Brooklyn this past weekend, and I did, also I, also long. I did not because it was two. It's two and a half hours long, and I was like, nope. Yeah, not gonna do I'm it. I'm excited. I will say I am excited to see in Motherless Brooklyn. If you're listening, it's prob- probably already not in theaters anymore. But I, I'm I'm I, I'm gonna definitely try to see it before it uh, slips away. Um, even though it's made zero dollars, I'm ex- I'm still excited <laughs> for that one. Um. And we got it. We will definitely do a Ed Norton B side sooner rather than later. Um, if he ever gets to make another movie ever again, maybe I when guess. maybe when uh, the Alita sequel comes out. Um, exactly. I guess yeah. spoilers for Alita, but whatever. He's an Alita. It doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he is an Alita. Um, um. All right. So Matt Damon, we love him. We like him. We want some more of him. We got. We've gotten a lot of him. Housekeeping. Follow me at at DJ Mecca. Follow Connor at Scruffy Looking. We have the B-Side uh, Twitter handle, TFS B-Side. That's up. Um, we will start uh, kind of you know, leading people to it more and more as we get our own feed. And until the next one. Let the sun beat down upon my face. Stars to fill my dreams. I'm a traveler of both time and space.
to be where I have been. Oh, she's I would stand in line for this There's always room in life for this